Hi, friends. Join us as we dive into the themes, metaphors, and foreshadowing of Buffy the Vampire Slayer. With both a spoiler and spoiler-free analysis, there's something here for everyone. We are your hosts, Leah, Sarah, Tabby, and whether you're a new viewer or a longtime fan, welcome to Becoming Buffy. Friends, we are in season three of Buffy. Uh, what in the world? This is actually a really exciting season. <laughs> that was the angel chorus. <laughs> I'm so excited. Like I was thinking back to when we started season two, and I can't even remember because it was so long ago. I distinctly remember us starting the podcast, but that feels like forever ago. But we're coming up on the first anniversary of dropping the podcast. I think it might actually be – I know, right? I think it might actually be around when this episode airs, which is really exciting. I think so too, yeah. I I thought it was in October. No, it was September 3rd, I think, was the first day that we dropped our episode. Oh, my goodness. I'm so excited. Season three is good. You can definitely tell that it's been a year considering – I mean, I definitely – Hope you can tell that it's been a year because I feel like we are definitely a lot different than what we were. They're the like beginning. the quality has gone to crap. Listen, y'all. Um, when let's just say when we first started, we really did not know what we were doing at all. Uh, we still kind of still don't. don't know what we're doing. What are you talking about? <laughs> no, I'm no. I'm so excited. Season three is just a fantastic season. I think it's a fan favorite. It's very consistent. It's, my it's very even. It introduces some really great fan favorite characters, um, storylines, arcs. Oh, it's just so good. It's when the show just really hits its stride. So I am – I'm so excited. Season three is amazing. I love it. It's my you favorite You like John Raffio from Parks and Rec. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> this season opener, I don't know what it was. I think it was just the fact that it was somewhere else other than Sunnydale for Buffy. And so I was like, oh, I don't really want to see Buffy in like LA. And so I'd like skip it. Not that I didn't like it. Um, but then like when I had to rewatch it twice last year with different family members, um, mm-hmm. I watched the episode and I was like, oh my gosh. Like I think I was telling Leah earlier because I did – I wrote down so many notes about it because I always loved the um, metaphor of this episode, mm-hmm. especially with where Buffy's at in her life right now. But then hearing all the dialogue and then the the similarities between Lily and Buffy, mm-hmm. it's just like this episode is really, really good. Like the, I feel like it's one of the tightest metaphors we've seen, mm-hmm. in my opinion, so far in an episode. See, yeah. I'm opposite where somehow I ended up watching this episode like a trillion times. Like I literally could probably recite this episode scene for scene because I've seen it so many times. No, you couldn't. (laughs) No, I couldn't. That's me being dramatic. But I have seen it a lot. Like, but I love it. Like every time I watch it, I'm still interested. As I was analyzing and stuff too, I was like, I didn't realize how much this episode deals with what happened in becoming part one and part two. Obviously, we know Buffy's dealing with the fallout, um, the PTSD, and the despair of what happened with Angel. But I'm realizing that there's so much more that's going on as well. And I was like, this is so good. And we've talked about it before. I think I brought it up in Lie to Me, um, which was the seventh episode of season two, how the first six episodes, six to seven episodes of each season deal with the aftermath of the season before, which I absolutely love. 
And then the seventh episode is the turning point of the season when you start to reveal, okay, we're moving on from that. Now we're going to reveal sometimes the big bad, sometimes new characters, whatever it is, it's the turning point for the season. Um, and then last uh, season, it was Lie to Me. And so I, I don't know what it's going to be for this one, but it's exciting just to kind of like, we're back to the beginning again of season three, and we're going to be working through the ramifications of season two, which I think is much needed because what we just saw with Angel dying and Buffy getting kicked out of school and her house and all that stuff, we need to talk about that, you know? Um, so in our spoiler sections, we've been kind of talking about the themes of each season. We decided to kind of incorporate that into our spoiler free section as non-spoilery as we can. Um, so we talk about in season one for us, the theme of season one is acceptance. Buffy accepting that she is a slayer and accepting that role. She's been kind of like, she's been really wrestling with her role as normal girl and slayer. And she kind of does a little bit in season two. And then season two was becoming, it was this idea of, okay, you're choosing to accept your role as slayer, well, now you got to accept that that's a part of you. You're not just human, but you're also slayer. Um, so I guess a little bit of acceptance, but also just like becoming for so many other characters. Um, and then for season three, our arc for it is going to be choices. This is senior year of high school. There's going to be a lot of decisions and choices made for each of the characters. And as we go along with each episode, we'll kind of unpack that a little bit and talk about specifically what choices are being made um, and how they're being made and stuff. So the consequences of choices as you come into yourself and come into your age, like you have to realize, okay, I'm going to be a, an adult and making Big decisions means having to own up and be responsible for my decisions. Yeah, and definitely for those of you who have seen the show before, let us know what you think the theme of season three is. I'm always like curious to hear from other people. And obviously, like choices is very broad. I think there are several other themes that fit within that category as well. And um, it's just going to be really fun to talk about as we go along. So, all right, let's jump in. So season three, episode one, Anne, written and directed by Joss Whedon, which I really love that Joss, with the exception of a season one premiere, writes and directs all of his premieres and finales, um, which I really, really love because I think that he has the best idea of what's going on inside of his character's heads. And so he just kind of, it sets the tone for the episode and it's, I just love it. So where season one was just finding its feet and figuring out the characters and season two was figuring out its themes and where it wanted to go, season three is when the show just really consistently hits its stride. It's like it ironed out all the kinks in season two and season three, with the exception, I think, of like one episode that's like not great. All of the episodes in this season, I think, are just like absolute hits. Season three is a fan favorite and is pretty universally hailed as the tightest and most consistent season of Buffy, um, maybe with some competition from season five. It becomes even more serialized and every single episode is intentional and purposeful. Um, it's typically seen as less emotionally impactful because it has a lot of themes and a lot of things going on versus season two. Um, and a lot of writers actually have a lot of quotes and stuff where they say that because Leah's giving me stink face. I guess my thing is, is like, absolutely, yes, there's other impactful seasons and stuff. But I think at least when I watched it, season three, like there was so much that happened at the end of season three that I took a break watching the show after season three because I Aww. emotionally could not handle it. So to hear 
to hear like people other people say like this is not the super emotional season I'm like liars <laughs> dead liars yeah and I think it just depends upon what people deem as emotional and stuff I think um yeah and we'll get there I don't want to spoil too much all right so I'm going to read a couple quotes from some writers and stuff about season three so Joss says, third season proved that there was a life after Romeo and Juliet. How do we keep this fresh, knowing that we had a countdown on high school stories when we'd only been in high school for two and a half years? There was discussion of whether we should be saved by the bell and they're in high school forever, and the decision to have them graduate meant that for the first time we were going to get into some serious changes just in terms of the look, the feel, and the lineup, which I think is really interesting because in a lot of shows, a lot of the drama and the momentum is led by the main relationship, which is will they, won't they? Will they get together? And Buffy and Angel kind of already went there, did that. Angel's dead now. What are you going to do next? You know what I mean? A lot of stories that start in high school, they either A, peak in high school. And so after high school, they just don't know how to kind of keep that momentum. Or they try to keep the magic of high school, but then they keep them in high school too long to the point where it just doesn't logically make sense with the scenarios anymore. Again, not to crap on uh, oh, Vampire no. <laughs> Diaries, but – and here's the thing. I like Vampire Diaries, but I, one complaint I did have about the show is that they were doing all these crazy supernatural things and blood sacrifices and all this stuff, and then they're like, let's go take our junior year finals. Like, it was like <laughs> – but it was for seasons. I think it was like four or five seasons they were in yeah, high I don't school. Remember. I was like I was like, what the heck? Like, when are these fools gonna graduate? Like it just and obviously other shows do that too. I mean, as much as I love Gossip Girl, it definitely feels the most like Gossip Girl when they're in high school. When they go to college, it doesn't have the same feel. It's still good, but it doesn't have the same feel. So I think that I like that they chose to kind of uh keep it a normal three seasons of high school um and you know we'll see how they transition into college and stuff but yeah it's kind of cool that joss is not afraid of change and he's not afraid to push his characters and his storylines and i think it's also cool that they decided to keep buffy in real time so like when they decided to take a break for the summer they would come back in the fall and they'd start airing in the fall and so the people that were watching along felt like they were living life right alongside with Buffy and their friends, which I thought was kind of cool. So David Fury says, there was a change between season two and three. It was kind of that fractured quality. In season two, it didn't seem to be quite coming together yet. And suddenly, and a lot of it was because of the Angela story, by season three, the show was so clearly defined. The staff seemed much more relaxed. There was a little bit more confidence there. Jose Molina says this. He's the executive story editor for Firefly. Buffy started out very much monster of the week. There were definitely instances in season one and two of Buffy where you could watch an episode not having any idea of where the serialized story was and walk away having enjoyed it. Starting in season three, it became the first season where if you missed an episode, you were missing something. The show evolved kind of naturally into an 80-20 monster ratio of the week to being more 50-50. The network wanted monster of the week and something that people could pick up without having seen anything else, and that honestly didn't work. 
Um, and then Sarah Lemelin, who's the author of It's About Power, says another relatively unused television tactic that the show helped promulgate was the use of long story arcs. When the program aired in 1997, the most common form of storytelling was episodic storytelling, where the stories of each episode started and ended and never carried over into succeeding episodes. While Buffy was not the first show to break this standalone episode format, it was one of the few shows in the late 1990s that consistently used long long arc successfully with its big bad evil plans of the season. In this way, viewers became addicted to the show and had a reason to return since the completion of an episode did not mean the completion of a storyline. This type of storytelling is now commonplace and standard in television. Um, so it's just kind of neat how you're watching it evolve. Like it's becoming episodic. They're starting to do like overarching uh, arcs. It's interesting to like hear about the response of the network, which is like, hey, no, we want to do reruns and we can't do reruns if we're just showing – like we want standalone episodes that we can show that people will get hooked because like the old viewers keep coming back, but we're not getting newer viewers as probably fast as they want to because you have to watch every single episode in order to understand fully what's happening. And Joss is like, you're hemming me in, man. Like, I can't tell my stories well if I have to keep it to just single episodes. Which is just so funny because if Buffy wasn't a huge overarching story, A, it would not be as good as it is, but also B, like, it would not have developed the fan base that it did because everyone was so hooked by the overarching story that they tuned in every single week. That's really funny that you say that, Leah, because my next quote talks about that. It's called Tribalism. So Steve Biodrowski, he's editor-in-chief of Sin Fantastic. Buffy was definitely part of a trend toward what I would call tribalism, in which popularity was dependent less on churning out great episodes than on using continuing storylines to hook viewers who began to see themselves as insiders who got it, while everyone on the outside was hopelessly out of it. And I think that's kind of why Buffy has such a cult following too to this day, because you really have to like watch the show in uh, maybe not necessarily order, but you kind of like when you do, you understand it a little bit more fully than if you're just an outsider watching it because you understand these characters' underlying motivations. Well, and we see that now with certain shows, like I think in the like early 2000s, like kind of mid to 10s, we saw that kind of skyrocket with shows like Supernatural, Doctor Who, Sherlock Holmes, like shows like that where like the fan bases became pretty much like a cult following because it was like it almost made you feel like you were a part of something that other people weren't because there was this huge overarching story. And I mean, I think that's huge now, especially in um like sci-fi fantasy shows is like kind of creating this world for the viewer. Dang, Leah, you keep taking all my stuff. But yeah, you're absolutely right. You can kind of see where this is going. Um, And then Thomas P. Vitale talks about how he says, Buffy broke ground in serialized television, especially for television aimed at a young adult demographic, which previously hadn't been offered many continuing stories. It can even be said that Buffy paved the way for all of the serialized superhero shows currently finding a teen and young adult audience on the CW. And like those CW superhero shows, Buffy appealed to both fanboys and girls as well as the general audience. And from a demo perspective, Buffy appealed to teens and young adults, but also to a more mainstream older audience. So it's interesting, like, how it Buffy really appeals, and we've talked about this before, to a very large demographic of people. And so I think that's partly why the networks kind of did let Joss do his thing, because they were like, hey, 
you're still pulling in the numbers, so keep doing what you're doing. I also think it's funny because, like, how they were all apprehensive of, like, leaving high school and stuff. If the show hadn't had left high school, it would not reach the same amount of people that it does now. Like, it reaches such a large audience and such a difference in age, age groups and stuff because the show left high school and it became more about an age a coming of age story rather than just a high school story. Oh, absolutely. Well, and it would have completely outgrown its audience. You know, the audience continues to move on and go, but then, you know, Buffy's still in high school. <laughs> My dog is chewing again. Just ignore the sound. So what do you guys think are the themes for this episode? I'm curious what your thoughts are. Um, I think at least the main theme that I picked up was just kind of mourning and loss. Um, and we definitely see a lot of similarities between Lily slash Anne's character and Buffy and just how they both kind of have to mourn a lost loved one in this episode and just how uh, they both kind of have had to handle it and the difference between someone who you know, hasn't really been forced to grow up yet and someone who was forced to grow up at a young age. Um, Mm -hmm. But I think that mine was just kind of mourning seeing that in different Mm -hmm. people. Yeah. I see the themes of despair and a search for hope. Um, It's also about identity, which is a huge part of adolescence. And it's going to be a huge part of this season, I think, because, I mean, you're trying to figure out who you are right before adulthood. Um, who are they? We hear that question back in Becoming Part 2 and Becoming Part 1 asking – Whistler asks, who is Buffy? Who is Angel? And we had the resounding me as Buffy catches the sword. And here we are, you know, season three, episode one, we're being asked, who is Buffy? You know, continuing to, to ask that question. It's also really interesting. A person's name is their identity. And in Buffy's case, her name is also a symbol of hope because she's the slayer. Um, that's why she changes it. Names mean a lot more in other cultures. And I feel like it's something our culture has really lost. We we kind of just name people based upon like how well we like the sound of the name. But I I mean, I think about, you know, indigenous people and even uh, like a, a lot of ancient cultures would name their child, sometimes not up until a year after, year or two after they were born because they were like, we want to see the personality of the child. And like, there's going to be some defining moment that defines who they are and that's what we're going to name them. And so I think I like how in this episode, like names have meaning. It defines who you are. This episode shows a lot of Buffy's grief and despair, how she's frozen in place because of it. And this is symbolized by time moving in the hell dimension. Um, Passion of the Nerd said something really great. And I think it sums up the episode. It's hope is the line between grief and despair. And so if you're despairing, you don't have hope. If you're grieving, you still have hope. And I think when we see Buffy at the beginning, she's despairing and she needs to find that hope again. Little behind the scenes facts. Michael Gershman, the director of photography, said this is his favorite episode, which is really cool. And Michael Gershman, we've talked about before, he's the guy who directed Passion, but he also um, kind of was like a surrogate father to Sarah Michelle Gellar. He walked her down the aisle on her wedding day, which I thought was really sweet, and did the first dance with her. Oh, what? That's so cute. I didn't know that. Yeah, he was kind of like her father figure. Isn't that adorable? Oh, wait, is he the one who passed away like last year or two years ago? Yeah, he passed away. He posted about somebody 
that she like was really close with. I don't remember when I he think passed. She away, posted pictures he... on her wedding day. Yeah, yeah, it was a couple years ago. I know who you're talking about. Dang, I didn't know that he like was a part of the show. That's really sweet. Yeah, it's really neat. Uh, and then a couple of writers and behind the scenes people um, were shuffled around in this season. So David Greenwald was promoted to co executive producer. Marty Noxon is now co-producer, and we have new t- two new writers, Jane Espenson and Douglas Petrie. They're both promoted to executive story editors and writers, which I'm really excited about because both Jane Espenson and Douglas Petrie write fantastic episodes. Um, there's a couple of changes to the episode visually, too. I don't know if you guys noticed, but we now have the new remastered version of the theme song. It's a lot smoother. Um, it doesn't come go off tempo. It just sounds a lot cleaner and more polished. Also, the font for the Buffy title is different. I don't know if you guys noticed this, but for seasons one and two, we don't have the iconic Buffy font, the goth font that we all know and love. It only comes up in season three. They completely redid it. So the next time you watch- Wait, really? Yeah. The the next time you watch the openers, go back to like Becoming Part 2 and look at the opening credit and you'll notice that Buffy looks different. And then when you go to look at season three, the Buffy is the iconic goth. Hmm. Isn't that crazy? Yeah. That's a Mandela effect right there. Yeah. I swear on my life, it has always been the same font. No, it hasn't. Yeah, I'll post a picture on Instagram too. I think it's really interesting. All right. If I remember correctly, every season opener minus one starts out in a graveyard. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The only one that doesn't is the first episode of – it's like the season one pilot. Oh, so it's from two to seven then? All start out in graveyard? Yeah, because um, two starts out with Xander and Willow walking around playing the name or the mm. – I forget what game it is they're the playing. Movie, the movie yeah. – uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, the movie game. Oh, gotcha. Movie one. Yep, so every single gotcha. season premiere starts out in a graveyard. Dang. Every time I watch the beginning of this episode, I forget the Buffy isn't here only because it starts out exactly the same. And I like the misdirect that they have because they pan from like the legs up and then the Willow says something like, that's yeah. right, big boy, come and get it. And then they all make fun of her. They're like, why'd you say big boy? <laughs> but I think it's cute that the whole gang is sitting there and they're trying to like kind of fit in the shoes of Buffy. And it really goes to show just how much like strength Buffy has because they mentioned later on that they keep losing like half the vampires that there have been a ton the past few weeks. Well, they also talk about how they've taken for granted her punning. And I was like, I think that's also Mm. supposed to be kind of like a metaphor for other things too. Like they've taken for granted Buffy just in general as well. Like the fact that she is strong and capable and also funny at the same time. Yeah, like in her personality too, you can tell that they all are like just missing her. They even mention like, oh, like school's starting tomorrow. Um, They're like hoping that she shows up even though they haven't seen her or have heard of her in a long time. How long has Buffy been gone? I know she's been gone for summer, but when she left in season – I swear – Sorry, the only reason I'm on this podcast is because I literally sound like an idiot half the time because I forget everything. I like pretty much play the role of like the first time listener. Anyways, um, Leia actually mentioned that the other day because she had a question. Um, we were chatting back and forth. One of our listeners, Leia, shout out to Leia, and she asked a question about like Buffy with the pencil and becoming part one. She's like, "Wait a minute, have we ever seen that dream that Buffy has?" She asked me, and then five minutes later, she goes, "LOL, Leah asking the same questions as me." And then she goes, and then she said, "Leah never paying attention." I was like, "Oh, 
Leah's being called out. <laughs> no, pay attention. It's just that, like, A, I have the worst memory on planet Earth, but also B, like, sometimes I feel like the timelines aren't clear to mm. me. Mm. <laughs> to me. Because, no, I know. Because last time, proving I pay attention, the last episode, like, Buffy was supposed to show up for school and she never did. So we know that Buffy left during the school year. Yeah. And now it's a new school year. So I'm like, has, we know she's been gone for at least summer, but it's like how much of last school year did she Do you she remember miss? what was happening that last week before it she left? It was during um, finals. It was finals. Finals. Yeah. Gotcha. So it was literally the last week. Yeah. Yeah. And it's okay. like the Makes night sense. before. Yeah. Yeah. So she's the been gone The entirety like, what, of the months? summer. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Probably two and a half months or so. Something like that. Also, I wanted to point out that the fact that Oz is in this opening scene and we see that he's in the credits gives me a lot of hope that Oz is going to be Mm -hmm. featured a lot more. I think it's really cool that he's out patrolling with them and stuff. He has a lot of dialogue too. I know. I was like, what? I don't think we've ever heard Oz talk this much before. Mm -hmm. But it's also like, yay, finally, make use of Oz. We want more Oz. Seriously. Okay, so fun fact, guys. Oz's stake, the one he like throws at the vamp and it bounces (laughs) off the the headstone, (laughs) um, it's a whittled down baseball bat. (laughs) Oh, really? Yes. That's funny. (laughs) That's why it's so long. Well, I always found this scene particularly funny, not because he throws it, which is hilarious too, but the sound that it makes is so cartoonish. It's like, boink. Yeah. Yeah. But I think it's supposed to be like that on purpose, but I don't know. I feel like this opening scene is really like one of my favorite opening scenes in an episode just because it like hits all of its marks. There's like humor to it. There's like inner motivations, kind of like when I've mentioned in the beginning, like Xander mentions that he like is excited to see Cordelia. He's surprised he wants to see Cordelia. You see <laughs> Willow trying to kind of like not mention the fact that Buffy's been gone. She's like, oh, no, past like past tense rule. You see Oz kind of sitting there knowing that he's going to be at school tomorrow. And he's like, oh, big day tomorrow. Yeah, not um, telling Willow that he's going to be at school just like shows I up. I know. Oh, my gosh. Um, And then I think it's cute because having to like write down a lot more for each episode as like the podcasts go along, you pick up a lot of small things. Um, Like there – I think it was Oz – or no, it was Xander. He's like, first of all, what was with the acrobatics? And they're like, <laughs> oh, wasn't – and I forget the guy's name. They're like, wasn't blah, blah on the gymnastics team? And he's like, Holick, that's right. Yeah. Cheater. <laughs> <laughs> But it's not – it's funny, but then it's also sad because you think about it. You're like, oh, they know these people. <laughs> I used to be friends with that's, them. That's what I thought. They're just like not even sad at all. They're like, oh, yeah, there goes Andy Hollick. Like, and there's another one of us that got killed. <laughs> and they have to kill him. They're like, ah, oh, darn. That's right. We did swim all of our lives together. We, we did gymnastics. Well, and I think it's funny too. Like for the remainder of the episode – they're like after this one vampire, like they're stalking out Andy Hollick, this guy they used to go to like gymnastics mm-hmm. with or like saw in gymnastics team. It's so funny. I do think it's interesting. Like we've talked in the past about Willow, how it feels a lot like when there's uncomfortable things that are going on, Willow kind of like doesn't really want to address it. She kind of like finds other ways to yeah. move past it or even just like the way she's talking about it in this scene, she's She's not wanting to talk about like, oh, hey, Buffy's not coming back. It's like she doesn't want to face that. And then she says, Mm -hmm. wouldn't it be great if Buffy just showed up tomorrow like nothing happened? And it's Mm -hmm. just like another example. that's what she wants. Yes. It feels like another example of of Willow trying to suppress – or not suppress, but maybe like 
downplay other people's pain because it makes her uncomfortable. And it just feels like yes. I wonder what kind of environment Buffy's going to come back to if that's mm. the mentality and the idea that's going on. I don't know. There were a couple of other things that we – and I'll get to yeah. we'll get to in this episode that she mentioned that I was kind of like – I don't know that she necessarily wants Buffy to come back for the right reasons, although I know she loves Buffy. Yes. Well, I feel like – Okay, you can be selfish in situations and still be a good person. Yeah. But I think that this is very selfish of her. And we've seen kind of snippets of this in the past where she kind of glosses over Buffy's pain um, and doesn't really give it its due diligence. And I think that like her kind of not wanting to maybe face the music in the scenario and be like, you know what, something is clearly really wrong with Buffy and if she comes back I will be here for her rather than being like oh I just want to ignore it and then everything get back to normal and I guess we'll see what it's like when she comes back and I hate saying that because it's like clearly I know what's gonna happen um (laughs) but like I think that we have seen a little bit of selfishness when it comes to because also we have seen Willow in moments where she has been hurt and it Mm -hmm. feels like she needs validation very much so. And it's like, I'm not blaming her for needing validation, but then it's like, okay, girl, if you, you have to have some consistency here. Like if you're going to demand that for yourself over stuff that people can't control, like Xander not having feelings for you, then it's like, okay, if Will's, if Buffy's going to come back then, or just like knowing that she's not here right now, you have to have some sort of, empathy for her you know yeah i kind of disagree i I don't think that willow is at all being rude or anything to buffy i i think that willow is processing things just like buffy is i mean their best friend is gone they went through a pretty traumatic experience not anything near what buffy went through i'm just saying like i think that they're all kind of grieving too because they've had to live the past three months without one of their best friends and then had to take on the role of being a slayer you know and so it's like i don't think that willow is at all being unkind or selfish towards buffy because they all seem pretty gracious as far as like her healing and stuff is i mean to be fair we'll see in the next episode and stuff but as far as this episode i really don't think that anyone was being unkind towards Buffy, except for maybe Anne at some points. Well, we're not saying like everybody in general. We're talking about Willow specifically. And we're talking about Willow when it comes to she's not – there's no acknowledgement that Buffy left because she's in pain. Like we hear Xander talk about it, which is really good. But Willow is kind of just like, no, 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 no. There's no way that Buffy won't come back. And like – Oh, I hope that like – or wouldn't it be great if she comes back and it's just like it always was? I think that mentality is not leaving room for Buffy coming back as a changed person or as a different person and giving her room and space to like kind of work within that. Um, and, I, and I'm not just saying that just based on this scene. I think there's a scene later on the bronze where Willow's like, oh, man, the bronze isn't the same without Buffy, which – Again, can be taken like, yeah, she can miss her friend and say, hey, the bronze is not the same without Buffy. But it feels like Willow kind of filters everything through how it affects her. And I, and we've seen that like in, um, I only have eyes for you when she's like, hey, Buffy, like you've been kind of bummer, Buffy. Like you're not hanging out with me. Like kind of get over Angel. So at least, and again, it could be me projecting, but I'm seeing a pattern of Willow where it's like, she kind of wants people to get over things and move through things faster than I think they're ready for. Um, yeah. I mean, I see what you're saying. I just, the way that I see this episode is way more of just a friend who misses her friend and is 
reminiscing on what it was like when she was there. Yeah, and that's fair, and that's, that's true kind of too. All I really read her as. Yeah, and I think it can be both those things. I think I just see something else in there too. But again, I tend to like look into things a little bit too much too, so I could be reading into it. But and I think it's hard too since we've seen the show, and I think there'll be a little bit more of examples of this later on. Um, and so this next scene at the beach, I think this scene is is weird to watch only because we've never seen Buffy at the beach before. But I think that's supposed to be on purpose because Buffy is just, I think she's romanticizing and longing for a normal relationship with Angel, but then also reminiscing on having Angel around. I think you lose like grip of reality. And then when you're dreaming about someone you love, it's like, I don't know, it feels very not Buffy. And I think it's hard and sad to watch because it's like, oh, like she never got this, you know? It's interesting because he's he's wearing a lighter shirt and he's in sunlight. Yeah. It's just very weird. Mm-hmm. Um, and we have seen Buffy at the beach, but it was at night. Um, it was in Go Oh, Fish. that's right. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah. I mean, that we, and we also felt like that was weird too. We're like, oh, they're at the beach. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting that Buffy chooses the beach as kind of her happy place, as the place that she goes to with Angel. Uh, he's also wearing his Clodagh ring and you can mm-hmm. hear the Bangel theme like underneath the piano score. It's really beautiful. And it happens as soon as he puts his arms around her. It's really beautiful. Um, how did you find me here? If I was blind, I would see you stay with me. And then Angel says forever. That's the whole point. I'll never leave. Not even if you kill me. Oh, I think she just needs to hear that. Like this whole scene is something that she really longs for. And it just makes me sad. The not even if you kill me felt kind of um, sinister, though. And I think it's like, again, Buffy's subconscious. Mm-hmm. I viewed the whole thing as like, you know, you're dreaming and you're like, oh, this is so fun. This is so pleasant. And then as you start to wake up, things become a little bit more realistic as like your subconscious starts to re- recognize, mm-hmm. oh, hey, this is a dream. This isn't real. And the fact that Buffy mm-hmm. wakes up right after, it makes it feel like she's dreaming. She's in a happy place. But then hearing not even if you kill me. Is her body telling her, hey, we're waking up now. This is reality. You can't just escape. Yeah. But I also think it's usually the parts of the dream that you remember the most are the ones that you had right before you woke up. And so I think that it's also one of those things where it's like the, the part of the dream that's sticking out to her is obviously going to be the painful one with Angel, which is the one that ultimately wakes her up. Well, and it's super interesting because the ocean sounds sound a ton like the traffic sounds outside her window. Because if you'll notice as she's walking towards the window, you're thinking, oh, she's at the ocean. And then it pans out. And once you see the street, you hear the sirens and all the other stuff. So it's like we kind of have the same feeling as Buffy where it's like, oh, as we're lolling off to sleep, we're hearing all these sounds. It feels like we're at the ocean and then, you know, harsh reality just comes crashing in. Nothing like makes more sense to me when it comes to harsh reality than like <laughs> sirens, cars and <laughs> sirens. Especially and LA, people man. People talking, people yelling, you know, <laughs> smoke, all those things. Home sweet home. <laughs> I know. I think it's just sad too because she wakes up and then it's just like the sound of life moving on, but she hasn't moved on. Mm-hmm. Um, which I think is she's got to hit home way more. Because you you kind of look out and you're like, oh, everyone's like about their day and I'm in the same place. And she's so alone. I, I mean, I agree with what you guys are saying. I think that it's also to show like the difference between 
a dream, which was very peaceful and it was very intimate, mm-hmm. her and Angel and just a sense of home. And then it's like she wakes up alone in this huge city that's loud and not at all intimate. And so I think it's like trying to show polar opposite of what her life is like. Then we cut to the restaurant and poor Buffy and Ellie has had to pick up a side job at a disgusting restaurant, to say the least. Mm -hmm. There are a lot of jobs I would not want to do, but I feel like being in a diner like this, not like a restaurant in LA, because some restaurants can be pretty nice, but like this looks like it's like the sketchy edge of town at a diner where like middle-aged creepy men go to with like their friends like every like morning because they have like nothing else to do and just like hit on every girl they see poor girl gets like roped and we have that moment where it's like okay buffy come on come on be you Mm -hmm. and then she just moves on and i think it's just to showcase like how far removed she's trying to make herself from the slayer from buffy summers and it's really hard to watch well i see it as like she has no like emotional capability and that kind of ties into her physical capability too she's just like whatever she just like is kind of mentally done also sidebar how much money is she making at this freaking diner to be able to afford her own apartment Mm. in la like i know that's what i think too (laughs) mad out like they must be paying her bank for her to be making it in la because here's the thing like she does have a really crappy small apartment but it's still to herself like an apartment yourself by yourself in la has got to be like what two thousand month something like that that like you'd have to be easy yeah but if it's like a creepy crappy area then i feel like it's got to be somewhat better but 2000 or so give or take more or less like you'd have to be working like all day mad hours and then living on like rice and beans it is a little out of touch i think either way living in a city is way more expensive than if you're gonna go live somewhere like more rural which i feel like would have been a better choice Mm -hmm. for buffy but then again, it makes sense for her to go to L.A. because her dad is there and she's not that far from her mom. But I, my guess is she probably just wasn't thinking. We know that there's a connection directly from Sunnydale to L.A. So she probably just got on the bus and stopped at the first stop, you know. But also, I don't know. I'm really trying not to like be too realistic about this because I'm like, well, you'd have to – you'd have to like have a decent credit score, which girl, you don't even have – you didn't even have a job going into that. Um, you'd have to like sign up and apply the application itself. Yes, is a lot of money. Didn't have, again, didn't have a job beforehand, and then you'd have to wait like three weeks to be approved, then to move in, then to get a job enough to have two weeks to get a paycheck, and then by all this time, you'd be there for like a month before you'd leave again. Like it just does not make sense. Does not add up. <laughs> That's true, especially because she's only been there for like maybe a. Like two months at this point. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Uh huh. Well, I, I think know. she should have just like been like homeless, just like living on the street. I she like basically that made is, more sense. though. I mean, her apartment is so crappy. I don't know. But anyway. Yeah. I don't know. Anyway, so she runs into Lily and Ricky. And this is that we find out Chanterelle from Light to Me, mm-hmm. which I, the, I didn't even recognize was her, honestly, the first couple times I watched this episode. Didn't yeah. even put two and two together just because she looks very different. Um, I think there's some obvious parallels. They show them the tattoos. Um, and she's like, oh, that's really permanent. And then he says, 
yeah, forever. I mean, that's the whole point. And mm-hmm. you see her face just kind of like shrink. Lily obviously recognizes her. Well, and that's the exact same thing Angel had said, you know, forever. That's the whole point. It's almost word for word. Um, and you could tell like Buffy's clearly very triggered by it. But I think that it's really interesting, the whole idea that they they tattooed each other's names because I talked about earlier how names is very significant in this episode. I mean, it's called Anne. Buffy's literally trying to run away from her identity. And here we have Lily and Ricky. Who knows if that's Ricky's real name, but we know that that's not Lily's real name. She is letting Ricky name her and then they're tattooing their names. So it's like this idea of like their identity is so wrapped up in each other. And I think it makes for a really interesting concept of so much of season two, Buffy's identity was wrapped up in Angel, at least for the first part of season two. And she kind of had to learn to grow on her own in the second half of that. And so it's interesting kind of watching, I think in a lot of ways, Chanterelle slash Lily is a more extreme version of Buffy. In this episode, she's supposed to kind of be a parallel of Buffy, as you've mentioned, Tabs. And so her and Ricky's relationship is very almost codependent in a lot of ways. I'm not saying Buffy and Angels is, but it just makes for like a really interesting question to ask. Like, okay, now that Angel's dead, like what does that mean for Buffy? Like how is she going to move forward with that? Um, But yeah, I don't know. I just think it's really interesting, the whole name concept and stuff. Mm Mm-hmm. Yep, and then Buffy, like Sarah said, is very triggered. She goes and tells her boss that she doesn't feel good, so she goes home early, which financially, girl, she shouldn't be doing that. <laughs> Tommy's um, like, we've already established, not a yeah. good idea. <laughs> um, and then we cut to the library, which this scene is very odd because there's like dozens of people in the library. But <laughs> yeah. After that, too, I was like, yeah. it feels so weird to see so many people in the library. I was like, this is off-putting. <laughs> Well, it's weird, too, to see Giles actually being, like, a librarian. I'm, like, checking out books. I'm, like, (laughs) Leah's, like, get out of my library. I know. I mean, this is the only time it kind of makes sense because it's the beginning of school. So everyone's trying to get all their books and check them out or whatever. But um, poor guy. You could tell that he has, like, a bajillion thought processes at one time. He's, like, trying to check out books. He's thinking about Buffy. He sees Willow asking her about slang. Like, there's just so much going on with him. Um. And then Willow runs into Cordy. Cordy's complaining about like a fancy resort that she was in throughout the summer. My goodness. First world problems. And then she goes out and has this sweet little moment where she's like, do I look okay? Like, how's my hair? She's like asking. She's like, oh, I hope he didn't forget about me. Like, um, did he meet anyone? And then she's like, oh, but there's only monsters here in Sunnydale. But then again, he's always been attracted to monsters. (laughs) Which is fair. Well, and I feel bad for Willow in this moment because she's like, who's he going to meet? And you can tell Willow looks down at that moment and you can tell she's a little like, I was into Xander. And I mean, I don't know if she's into him anymore, but, you know, she had feelings for him for a while. And then her saying, oh, he was only into monsters, like that can't be fun for Willow to hear, you know? Mm. Well, no, she didn't say he's only into monsters. She said he has been into monsters. Right. But she said – no, who's he going to meet in Sunnydale but monsters and stuff. And, like, Willow looks down at that moment. It's very – Allison Hannigan, like, plays Willow in such a way that you could tell, like, she's still a little hurt by it. It's really interesting. Um, And here's the thing about this situation with Cordelia. I think that she was valid in being hurt initially. I think I just get kind of a little bit frustrated because I'm a girl, you're dating somebody. Like, I don't know. I'm the last person to sit here and tell somebody they can't feel what they're feeling. 
um, especially if it's not hurting somebody. But if you're in a relationship, like you just kind of have you have to move on. Like it's it's time. Like you're committed to Oz. You guys have been dating now for like from what we've seen, like the good of last semester, all summer and the beginning of the school year. Like you just you have to either choose. Okay, you know what? I'm gonna wait for Xander, yeah. or I'm gonna commit to choices. Oz. Yeah. Oh my gosh, this is gonna be such a frustrating yes. season with some choices. Um, but <laughs> but this scenario, I'm like, girl, like, no, I'm sorry. Like, you you can't be hurt by that anymore. That was in the past. You're supposed to yeah. be moved on. You're with Oz. I don't know. It's very frustrating. Um. So before we move on to the next phase of the conversations. I don't know if you guys noticed, but this whole scene is all one continuous shot. Did you guys notice that? I noted that, but I specifically think that they did that, A, because I think they wanted to show the fast-paced nature of coming back to school after a long summer, Mm -hmm. but also, B, because they wanted to contrast the difference between everyone else's lives moving in, like, super speed and Buffy's, whose is silent and is unmoving. Yep. Yep. Bingo. So this is just, I mean, we know from, I think I talked about it in Innocence where Joss Whedon intentionally does long, he calls them single takes because it requires um, the camera and the actors to do more work because the camera has to kind of move around and stuff. And it creates a very intentional feel and environment, but also too, it's cheaper. And so Joss tends to do it on his um, schedules because he knows he'll be on time and stuff. And a lot of directors aren't, but it's really interesting. Okay. So we start up at the stacks with Giles and Willow go behind the desk, follow Cordelia and Willow out the library. Then we go on to Oz. And then we have a student that runs past Willow and Oz. So we follow it with the camera. And then we go straight to a teacher who corrects them. And I don't know if you guys remember, but this is the same teacher who was in um, I Only Have Eyes for You, the history teacher. And he was writing on the, I think it was the chalkboard. And that's when the possession of the I ghost. knew I recognized yeah. him, but I couldn't place it. It's yes. The same yes, teacher. Yes. I love the continuity. Yes. I do too. It makes – and they did that intentionally. They put a teacher that's had um, dialogue before that isn't dead haha, in there. And then they have – you know, you have the conversation with Larry pops in. You have all these moving things and mm-hmm. we see all of the sets for the school. And the idea is to show like the excitement of everybody being back, the familiarity, the family feel. Like, yeah, um, the scene is almost 3.5 minutes long. That is a long time. It has six main actors, almost 100 extra and nearly 50 lines of dialogue that they have to do in one single take. That is insane. And it feels like a play, but I love it because in real time, Mm -hmm. like you get the tension between Cordelia and Xander. And like Leah mentioned, it's supposed to specifically contrast the very next scene, which is Buffy just sitting alone inside her house. And it's also supposed to kind of show the amount of life that is in a school in contrast with what we're going to talk about for the remainder of the episode, which is the idea of young people growing up before their time being kicked out of their homes. It's supposed to contrast all of the young people that we see in Los Angeles, having their youth taken away from them. So here we are, senior year of high school, watching all these people ready to begin the rest of their lives. Like it's in a very exciting time of their life. And then we have other young people and it's just a complete contrast and it's really interesting. So- and I like that they put a lot of like different things in those three minutes. And so I'll kind of highlight a lot of those things real quick. Um, one of them was that 
Oz is the senior again, um, which is kind of a, it's a funny thing. You can tell thing. Willow's wrestling with it. Yeah. She's like, how do you expect me to respond to this kind of news? And he's like, well, I was kind of banking on you finding it kind of cute. Um, and then you pan over and you see like Xander walking up to Cordelia. And then you could tell they both are like, oh, crap, what do I say? And then there's like zero heat, which is funny. But I think why it's so awkward is because a big portion of why they were dating in the last season was because it was so much like sexual chemistry. Mm-hmm. And so it was like a lot of it was making out and there was passion and there was heat because it was a very intense time that now when the relationship is more, you know, cemented, it's kind of like, oh, like, I don't want to just make out with you all the time. Like, because that's the natural way of relationships is eventually the physicality stuff dies down a little bit. and you know. The more important stuff is ultimately your connection with the person. I think that they haven't built an actual connection with each other yet. So now they're having to start at ground zero again. That's so interesting because I kind of saw it slightly different. I I agree with you. Their relationship is based on physicality. And so the fact that like this is showing their main flaw, which is their struggle to communicate, which we've talked about before. But I think also too, their relationship we saw in the last few episodes started to actually reach a deeper level where they really cared about each other and they had expressed that to each other. And so I think there was a lot of hype built up in them meeting. And so when they actually do meet, I think- that there was a bit of a frustration of like a lack of acknowledgement for Cordelia on Xander's side. She was frustrated that Xander didn't acknowledge how much he missed her. It was just kind of like a good summer. Cool. Yeah. You know, kind of thing. And so I think it's this level of there's more expectation because there's more emotions involved. Like both Mm. of them feel very vulnerable right now and don't want to, and both of them are prideful. Both don't want to be the first person to say, hey, I missed you. They want to hear the other person say it first. Yeah. But also what relationship is it where you go three months without seeing each other or talking? One where there's no internet, like. (laughs) No, I know, but it's like, even then y'all don't like, Call each other on the phone or like True. Okay. meet That's up scary. in person. Like you're literally dating and you haven't talked to this person all summer. Like that's crazy. Well, I think it's implied that Cordelia was on vacation throughout the whole summer. Yeah, I mean, she, that's what I kind of gathered. Yeah, she was in Mexico. So maybe it was a lot harder for them to call each other. Like when you don't have cell phones, using landlines is a lot harder like on a in a different country. Yeah. And I think both of them are just like kind of like Sarah said, they're both very stubborn. Mm-hmm. And so I think it would show weakness if they wanted to call them throughout the summer. Mm-hmm. And I think they're trying to deny the fact too that they have an actual connection rather than just physicality. So I honestly, it kind of makes sense to me. Like, what happened to them over the summer? Like, for them during their time in their life and their relationship and them as individuals makes absolute sense to me. Yeah. Is it healthy? Probably not. But I <laughs> I understand it. Yeah. Um, And then we have that funny, like, pan over, like, Larry. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> and then Larry. Larry's, like, talking about how much he's so psyched for, like, the football and, like, everything starting oh up this gosh. year. And he's, like, as long as we keep discipline and not have quite as many mysterious deaths, <laughs> Sunnydale's going to rule. <laughs> I love his optimism. And that's the overarching <laughs> feel that you get is hope in this in the scene versus mm-hmm. Buffy, which is just despair. But Larry is just amazing, and I love that they brought him back. I think it would have been really cool I if know. we'd seen Harmony or Amy as well. I think that's kind of a missed opportunity, but yeah. it was fun to see all these old I love Larry, again. though. Larry is just great, yeah. Mm-hmm. The new Larry, not so much the old Larry, but yeah. I know. The on his way to redemption Larry. <laughs> yeah, there you go. The little arc at Larry. Yep. 
And then, as they said, the the parallels to the apartment, you have more silence. And then Buffy's walking around in the streets. And then you you did you guys see Ken handing out flyers? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Like I didn't even notice that he's literally on like the side giving it to like mm-hmm. somebody sitting on like the curb, which was a good touch. Did you guys notice the name of the diner that Buffy works at? No, what is it? Diner. <laughs> diner. <laughs> no. Okay, I'm so excited about this. You guys ready? You ready? It's called Helen's Kitchen. Oh my gosh, that's great! I love. Oh, that. like Hell's Kitchen? Yeah, like Hell's Kitchen. Isn't that great? That's funny. But also part of the metaphor that like, you know, mm-hmm. getting through everything is like going through hell and back. Well, and the cooking show. <laughs> the fa- the well, fact- yes. <laughs> the fact that Buffy's in kind of her own personal hell, the fact that the world is still continuing to move on and Buffy's just kind of frozen in place, it shows yep. that she's just in her own That's personal- the biggest metaphor in this. Yep. yep. Metaphor and then, you know. An actual reality that actual you went hell. through. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> exactly. I, it's yep. really interesting because I keep thinking about – so I think, one, it's very interesting that they brought Chanterelle slash Lily slash Anne, the girl has so many names, back for this episode because the episode that she was in, Lie to Me, Buffy says something very important to Ford. She says, you have a choice. You don't have a good choice, but you have a choice. And I think that it's such a good reminder for Buffy in this episode of like, you may be completely despairing, but you still have a choice. And I think that like, um, I think that's just kind of the theme for this season. And I think, I don't know, I think it's just really beautiful, like that they brought Lily back of all people. And okay. And I was going to talk about this later too and i'm glad you brought it up sarah just because you can be easy to watch this episode and see chanterelle lily and um to kind of <laughs> fall fall in the footsteps of someone who's really stupid in these situations be like oh for sure i'll fall along to this random guy but it's really consistent with her character and i like that they brought her of all people back because you could watch this episode with a random character and be like you are dumb for following ken you know but then it's like she talks about how she was in a cult she talked about how she was in like that also vampire cult like it's very in her character and also like she seems to have a lot of issues with her family um mm-hmm. and running away and she's lonely so those are the type of people that usually gravitate towards those type of situations I mean, ultimately, I think she's just looking for a home and somewhere to belong. Mm -hmm. And I think that's something that Buffy can really relate to. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think that Lily is a classic example of someone who's dealt with a lot of trauma in their life um, because they latch onto someone and gravitate to someone. And the fact that like just the actress, um, I forget her name, who plays Lily just does a fantastic job of, of having this like this very vulnerable side to her without appearing too needy. Like she obviously is like wanting a friend, like the way that she asks Buffy, Hey, you want to go hang out and do this thing? Like you could tell Chanterelle, Lily, I need to pick a name. Lily is just looking for someone. She's kind of looking for hope. And I think she sees a little bit of that in Buffy, or at least she saw that in the Buffy that rescue her in light of me. And so she's kind of looking for that in this Buffy and Buffy's like, you're like almost like you're my destiny. Stop chasing me. I want nothing to do with my past life, you know? Yep. And then we cut back to the library and Giles has, like Sarah said, he has hope in his eyes. You see a lot of different characters in this episode kind of have this tug and pull back and forth be- between like 
allowing the sadness and everything to engulf them and then allowing hope to carry them through. And you see Giles kind of having this like continued hope, which is very sweet because it's like then Xander has this line where he's like, what makes this different than the last nine leads? And then you see his face being like, well, this one has a meal. But then he cuts straight back to having hope and he's like, okay, well, I I better go catch my flight. I think it's because he's he's not – allowing himself to really think about it because then he wouldn't get on the flight and he needs to keep going. See, I don't see it as he has hope. I see it as he needs a purpose. And Mm -hmm. Giles, without Buffy, is a watcher without a slayer. Therefore, he has no purpose. And so I think that obviously he misses Buffy because he cares about her. But I think that ultimately, without Buffy, he's like, what is my purpose? And so trying to track down the slayer as a watcher, I think, logically makes sense to him. So it makes him feel like he's of use. Yeah, I think think it's a mixture of both those things. I think you're spot on, Leah. We've watched... Giles kind of flounder around with Buffy as an unusual slayer. And I think in this instance, it's like, okay, if I don't have a slayer, then who am I? Um, which I think is a really interesting, really interesting uh, question to ask. Also, I do want to give Xander props for saying to Giles, like, I just don't, I hate mm-hmm. seeing you hurt and so disappointed yeah. every single time. I thought that that was a really especially tender moment for Xander. And then also when he says, you know, I think he'll find her when she wants to be found. Yeah. I think Xander has some intuitive moments. I think he is understanding that Buffy obviously is staying away because she doesn't want to be found. But I just think that's, I think that's really kind of a rare moment of brevity from Xander where he's not like condemning someone for their feelings. I will say maybe it's just the evil in me, but I do think that partially, (laughs) sorry, but I do think that partially selfishly, Sander, for as much guilt as he feels with Buffy, I think that part of him kind of doesn't want her to come back because Mm. the longer she's gone, I feel like the less guilt he feels because she's not right there and her pain isn't directly in his face. And so I think that in his mind, too, it's like the longer the Buffy's gone, the more likely is she is to forget what happened. See, I see it differently. This is why I love having a podcast with two different people. Um, you <laughs> can have too. different opinions on situations. <laughs> no, I said, I, I mean, other than me. So you two and me. Gotcha. <laughs> I was like, too. I was like, well, thanks. No, no sorry. Um, I view it as Xander is the only one in the situation that knows the weight of what Buffy's going through. And Ooh. why does he know that? Because he withheld information. Whereas <laughs> everyone else... that. Well, here's, here's the thing. I'm not trying to bring that up just to, you know, cause drama. But, like, everyone else has this blind hope and or um, idea of what maybe Buffy's going through isn't that big. Maybe they're like, oh, she'll... Like, we'll find her, like, like um, Willow kind of mentioning, she'll come back and everything will be back to normal. Giles is like, oh, like, I'll find her. Um, Joyce is hoping she'll come back to the house. Um, Oz is just kind of helping. Um, but yet Xander's sitting here and he's understanding the reality of it. And I think it's because mm. he knows that it was a big deal and he knows that what he held was a big deal. Because he caused it. Yeah, that's what I mean. Like, everyone else kind of has this, like, a detached idea of what's going to happen and they don't really know what to face and or want to face it. And I think that he makes sense to me in these situations because he knows. And I think it's hard because it's like, yeah, that 
it's a nice thing that he says like, oh, I, I think he'll find her when she wants to be found. But even him saying that proves the fact that he knows that she's really going through it, which is really frustrating. Hmm. That's a really good point, Tabs. It's, it is interesting because when you think about all of the characters, he's the only one that's not going, man, I wish Buffy was back. Man, all this other stuff. He just keeps yep. kind of saying like, yep, yep, if yep. she comes back. It, yeah. mm-hmm. Oh my gosh. Ooh, mm-hmm. That adds a whole other layer to that. Uh-huh. I didn't even pick that up until this rewatch and I was like, ah, Xander. I'm dying. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I know we're really trying so hard to give you the credit, man, but you keep making it so hard. Oh, I had to get glasses to see your perspective. All I'm saying is it's a lot easier to not feel guilty when the person's not there. So, yeah, yeah, you guys can ponder on that. Gosh, I know. I'm sorry. Uh, So, and then we go back to the streets, and then Lily calls out to Anne. Buffy's not answering. And then she says, Buffy. And she's like, don't be mad. I won't turn you in or anything. Um, She's like, do you recognize me? And tells her that she like followed this cult that worship vampires. And she says, I know how it is when you got to get lost. And I think this is like a really sweet moment, even though Buffy's not really wanting to have it. But I think it's sweet that Lily is like trying to connect with Buffy and be there because Clearly, like, when they have that conversation where she's like, where's your family? And she doesn't answer. Like, she knows what pain is, even though we don't know her past. Mm-hmm. You can tell based off of what she's been going through um, that she knows what pain is. Her response is so interesting. It's either she doesn't have a home, which she probably doesn't, she doesn't remember, or she doesn't want to answer. There's something there. There's a backstory. Um, and Buffy saying, I like Lily, and her saying, it's cool for now, shows that Lily's still searching for her identity. She still doesn't know who she is. And it's interesting to watch Lily looking for her identity in people, in ideas, in so many different things other than herself, you know, and being comfortable with herself. It's like she's not comfortable with who she is, um, which I think is very interesting because in a way, she's more extreme version of Buffy right now because Buffy's not quite comfortable with who she is either. No, I love – like, again, I'm going to be, you know, beating a dead horse here, but I really feel like every character, everything was just so well put in this episode – and I, I just especially love Lily in this episode just because it shows us a different part of Buffy. Um, and kind of going on to like Sarah's theory from like a while ago that like almost all, if not all, female characters are like a foil of Buffy um, and represent a different part in her life and or the one that she's rejecting in the moment. And so I think that she's a really utilized character in this episode and of all the people i'm glad that she was brought back just because she makes the most sense in a metaphor like this one yeah this episode is interesting because i think even if you hadn't seen the episodes previous you would still fully recognize what's going on and, and appreciate it but there's so much fan service like you have larry brought back you have the history teacher brought back you know you have all of the layers and layers of stuff going on with the gang and then you have lily here and so having watched everything in season 2 it's just so rewarding to watch all these characters work really well together i i just love it yeah but then they have the interaction where she's like oh like do you want to go to like a rave <laughs> which is her trying to like half quality <laughs> time above he's like, like that's yes. not what i need <laughs> Um, and you can tell she's just like, no. Um, and then she's like, kind of like, oh, fine, whatever. And then, um, an old guy walks in between them saying, I'm no one. 
Um, walks in the middle of the street. Buffy runs over, gets hit by a car. The poor girl cannot I catch know. a freaking break. It's called real life hitting you right there. <laughs> I know, I another say, metaphor. I will say I like the fact that even when Buffy is down and not herself, she still sacrifices her life for others. Yeah, it just kind of feels like, you know, the car is Buffy's problems and issues. And now they're all like coming to literally hit her. And now she has to face them all. Um, just, you know, for those of you who want to visit every single Buffy location, the intersection where Buffy gets hit by the car is corner of 11th and Broadway in downtown Los Angeles. And Buffy's home is on 11th in case you want to go see if you can find it. So I'm going to add that to our bucket list of locations to go see when we want to go scout out Buffy areas. Also, also, did you guys make the connection that that old guy is Ricky? What? Yeah, I thought it was assumed. Yeah, I, I, I totally missed that. That old guy is Ricky because later on, there's wow, a- something <sighs> only I know. <laughs> okay, Leah. Ah, oh, losers, <laughs> soak it in. Yeah, soak it in, Leah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's Ricky, and so then when she f- goes to that abandoned place and she finds Ricky laying on the floor next to, I think it's like the. Drano or something next to his face. It's like, it's very clear that he was trying to commit suicide because he had no purpose in life and he didn't know who he was. So he was despairing. He had no hope. And then that's when she flips over and finds a tattoo. I never made the connection that's the same guy. Isn't that interesting? But that's also why I like, because I knew that I think like the second time watching it, I caught on to it. But uh, no, I, I have a purpose. I'm not just trying to rub it in your face. Um, but I, I always assume that's why he says I'm no one. It's because he doesn't want them to know he's Ricky and because it's like who he was kind of died. Meh, crash and burn. All right. Go ahead, Tabs. Take it. <laughs> I mean, I don't think that's why he said I'm no one. I think he just – because it mentioned that he like forgot who he was and forgot her name after, you know, years later. I don't think it's like a, oh, I'm no one. I'm not Ricky. And then gets all of a <laughs> by like a car. Cinder, I'm no one. <laughs> <laughs> She's like, oh, I'm sorry. How many you. times have you guys watched the freaking show and you didn't know it was Ricky? That's what I thought. That's what I thought. <laughs> Leah's cracks me up in this situation just because it reminds me of, um, uh, National Treasure when like Riley figures out oh, about yeah. <laughs> about the daylight time. savings yeah. and he's and like he's like, like this is what you feel like all the time he's like ah, let me just soak it in and they're like Riley we gotta go time's running out literally <laughs> no okay so when Buffy's walking past all those people when I talked about the Helen's Kitchen Diner you hear a bunch of homeless people saying I'm no one the idea is they've brainwashed them so much Ken has to the point where they literally have forgotten their own names they've forgotten who they are so that's what happened to Ricky. He just doesn't know who he is anymore. Yep. And then after Buffy gets like literally pummeled by a car, stands up, everyone's like, everyone's like, are you sure you want to keep walking? You should lie down. Uh, yeah, lie down and wait for the ambulance, lady. <laughs> I know. And then she like runs away from her problems, typical, um, mm-hmm. and then runs straight into Ken. And he's like, what are you running to? I guess I should ask, what are you running from? Acting as if he knows her, doing the whole tactic of like, I see you, He's even so though she's like, yeah. Well, she's sitting there and she's like not giving him any time of day. She doesn't want to be around anyone. He says, you're pretty new around here, but you got the look though, like you had to grow up way too mm. fast. And then he asks her what her name is. And she says, Anne. And again, it's the whole, Buffy's name is synonymous with her calling. 
It's very important this episode. No matter where she goes, she can't escape it. And as people keep asking about her name or calling her by her real one, it's just, it's really interesting. Yep. And then he's like, people get old fast here. This isn't a place for kids. Um, and then he says, the thing that drains the life out of them is despair. Mm-hmm. And I really feel like his dialogue here just kind of sums up the episode. Mm-hmm. So anyway, thanks guys for listening. Um, we'll see you next week. <laughs> you don't I'm need just help. I'm just despair. Yeah. <laughs> um, no, but I really feel like his dialogue is really like, really put in there for a purpose. Talking about how like, it kind of sucks out the life of people if they're like growing up too fast, which is definitely what we've seen in Buffy. He wasn't wrong about that. Mm-hmm. Like she definitely did have to grow up too fast, but she's not needing people who don't know her. She needs people around her that she loves and cares for. Um, And so for the difference between Lily and Buffy is that Buffy has people. Mm-hmm. But she's rejecting them at this point, whereas Lily doesn't have anyone, so she'll grab towards anyone. So this kind of top conversation would work on Lily, mm-hmm. but it doesn't work on Buffy. Well, and it's so manipulative because what he's saying is like half truth. You know, he's like, come here. Maybe we'll have something for you. Like he's giving them like, hey, I have hope for you. Hey, I have family. Hey, I have all this stuff. And it's so cruel because people go there having hope and expectation. Then they literally say, who are you? No one. And they take all of that. They take all away all free will and identity away from them. It's it's really sad. And this montage of homeless young people on the street is so sad, really sad, and it yeah. hits really close. Like it feels, um, it feels very realistic. It felt like you're mm-hmm. watching an actually like documentary and not just a TV show. Yep. I also thought it was really interesting. They had that um, non-binary person on the street, and it, it's very much like this episode kind of ties in very much with um, Joyce kicking out Buffy and that whole parallel with coming out. I saw huge, huge just symbolism for. Because a huge, huge population of homeless youth is uh, LGBTQ plus like community um, being kicked out of their homes and all of that stuff. And I mean, it's just so sad. Like children, literal children being kicked out of their homes to sleep with no home, no family, no anything. And I just think like it's crazy that I, like I caught up on that symbolism too, but it's like for a show that was made in the early 2000s, so, like, almost 20 years ago now, or over 20 years ago now, like, still reigns so true and even more true now. Like, that's insane to me. And I think, it, you know, I like that they have the subtle payoff, or not payoff, but the continuation of the theme that we had with Buffy being kicked out by her mom and this idea of like wanting family, wanting security, wanting hope, wanting um, people to love you and seeing this so contrasted with all of the young people at Sunnydale who are still at home do, you know, not everybody, I'm not going to say everybody has healthy family lives, but they all have some semblance of hope. You know, they're at least not living on the streets. They're at least able to get an education and stuff. So yeah, it's a very powerful moment for sure. This song that plays right here, it's um, Back to Freedom by the band Belly Love. And I wanted to read the lyrics real fast because I've noticed that in Buffy, the song that plays in the bronze usually correlates super mm-hmm. well with what's happening in the episode. And the lyrics in this are really interesting. So it says, I asked myself, why did I come again to find my own way to freedom? And the change is going to come. I'm going to find my way back to freedom. 
Chained by fear, my keeper was myself, and there's freedom inside. I woke up from a dream. The stars were in my eyes, calling me back home to sail my ship to freedom. And the change is going to come. I'm going to find my way back to freedom. Dang. I never pay attention to the lyrics, but when I do, I, I'm always like, man, Tabby, you got to really pay attention. Because <laughs> it really explains like the whole metaphor of every episode in the freaking song in the bronze. I know. Like, who would have thought? <laughs> right. It's so well done. I mean, the whole like chained by fear my keeper was myself. The idea is that Bobby's literally keeping herself a prisoner because of her fear. It's just – it's – it's crazy. To kind of defend you, Tubbs, uh, most of the time you can't really understand what they're saying anyways because they're all very uh, uniquely vocalized singers. And so <laughs> even if we did know the lyrics, I think it's got to be really hard to pick them out in the episode. There are some random songs from different like performers in the bronze or other scenarios and random episodes that are like always stuck in my head. Like, there's one uh, in, like, early season four, which everyone knows the scene I'm oh, talking no. about. Oh, no. That, that song is just, like, stuck in my head all the time. Thanks for ruining my day. Let's move <laughs> on with this. This episode is happier than that one. <laughs> and then to tie into that, like, you know, awkward Boy, situation. Boy, I'm glad we showed up for yeah, the Yeah, I know. Night. I was about to say. <laughs> it's like it pans over and everyone's all just sitting there like, well, this is fun. I love how self-aware this show is sometimes. <laughs> and then they start talking about how they need Will or they need Buffy to come back. They've been losing like half the vamps that they've been trying to slay. Um, and then Xander looks over at Cordy living her life, being normal, and he's like, I have an idea. Let's have my ex-girlfriend be bait. Oh, my gosh. But you know what? Cordy didn't have to agree. And we all know Cordy. She's a strong, independent oh, yeah. woman. And she would have said For no. Sure. The fact that she did meant she just wanted to be with Xander. Although I will say her dress is gorgeous for one. And I love Oz's dialogue in here when he talks about like how you know they're getting into a rhythm of slaying the vamps. And Xander's like, we're losing half the vamps. And Oz is like, yeah, but rhythmically. <laughs> <laughs> Spoken like a musician for sure. Oz steals the show every single time he's on the screen. Yeah, Xander, I know what we need. Oz is like a vampire slayer. <laughs> uh, Seth Green's like comedic timing is so funny. He's just so on. I just don't know how mm -hmm. he does it. I don't know that any other person could have played Oz quite like him. It's just – and it, somehow he makes it work. Like, I don't get it. He, like, does mm -hmm. so little and it's so much. There's a bit of dialogue here that was cut out. At least I'm assuming it was in this scene where Willow says, oh, that reminds me. I asked around about Andrew Hollick, our gymnastic vampire, and apparently he used to like to hang out in Hammersmith Park and pick up grills. Or, okay, that could be girls. <laughs> He's oh, a gymnastics Willow. vampire jumping around like stealing grills. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Anyway, uh, continuing and on then, with depressing night. Oh, I know. It cuts back and forth. Like, this episode is constantly like that where it's, like, really quite depressing and then, like, loud noise. Everyone's doing so many things. And it's – I like how it does it on purpose. Um I think that Buffy does this a few times where it's like, oh, Buffy's going through something or a Scooby is going through something. And then they contrast the world moving on. And so I think that's what real life is like. It's like even though you're going through stuff, it's – life is still moving on and you still need to keep like going forward, which sometimes is so crippling for people. It's like you still have work. You still have life. Some people have kids and a family and they have to get up every morning and they have to like put a brave face on and – keep working at it and like I just like how they do that 
because it's yeah. really realistic. So now we're at the house and I have mixed feelings mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. about this scene. Um, and hear me out. Okay. I'm listening. Um, similar to the Becoming Part 2 ending mm-hmm. scene, I think that she's valid in some of her points, but she takes it a step too far. And I – over the past couple of years, I've realized that a lot of people don't like Joyce that much. Um and then rewatching it, I don't think that she's a bad mom. I do think, however, that there are situations that I understand people's frustration with her about. And I 1000% understand this situation. I understand people from both perspectives. I think that it's not as black and white as people try to make this scene be. Um, I feel bad, Joyce, in the beginning because you see her kind of having hope when she hears a knock on the door. Mm -hmm. She goes – and this kind of mirrors the end of the episode where this one is a lot more hopeful and the second one is a lot more like, it can't be her. I've been here before. And so seeing her kind of be like, oh, what if it's Buffy? And she opens it and it's Giles and they have this whole conversation. He's like trying to reassure her and be like, you know what, Joyce? It's it's not your fault. You mustn't blame yourself, which um, I think it is kind of her fault. unpopular opinion um of why she left you literally told her she couldn't come back and so i think that it was her fault but also like giles can't tell her that you know so i get it and then he's like joyce you mustn't blame yourself for her leaving and then she goes i don't i blame you and then she goes and tells him that like he's been having this relationship with her behind her back and like I understand how she ends the conversation because he's like, oh, like, I didn't make Buffy who she is. And she's like, well, who exactly is she? I get that portion. I get her not understanding or getting her daughter because she's been out of the loop. I understand the hurt and pain through that. And that's all I'm allotting her for in the situation. Besides the fact of, like, Buffy being gone, I understand that pain. But then also, like, blaming Giles for having a relationship and being a father figure, like, She's been very absentee in a lot of situations and a lot of episodes that we've seen. And so I think it's really unfair to like be mad at Giles, who his job is to be like her watcher. And she may not understand that right now, but like, I don't know. It's just, it's very frustrating to be like, I blame you. Like, why would you shift blame on someone else when you yourself know the pain of your daughter not being with you? And then to like purposely try to make someone else feel bad when they've just done their job to love your daughter. See, I I 100% agree that Giles hasn't done anything wrong. However, I think people are a little bit harsh on Joyce in this scene. Because at least when you look at it from Joyce's perspective, there is this random man who she does not know at all, who is the only thing she knows about him is that he's affiliated with the school. And ever since he showed up, Buffy has been off on this Slayer business. Now she's finding out that he's heavily involved and that he was helping her daughter with whatever she was doing. And so it's like, I do understand where Joyce kind of feels a super manipulated and lied to, but also B, she feels like he kind of had this weird control over her daughter who is a minor and he is an adult. Like I do kind of understand why Joyce is so like angry because she's like, you know, Buffy is a child. She's very impressionable And from her point of view, it looks like Giles was just kind of manipulating her. Obviously, we have, you know, the information that Joyce doesn't. And so I don't agree with how Joyce reacts. I think that it's pointed, especially since you can tell Giles cares for Buffy and he's trying so hard to get her back. 
But I also do understand why Joyce is so frustrated and confused because, I mean, it's like it's an older guy from school who had spent lots of one-on-one time with Buffy and filled her head with a lot of stuff. Like, you know, when you look at it from that perspective, it's like, I understand why she's so concerned. Well, okay. I I understand why she's concerned. My thing is that it feels very much like her shifting the blame again, like in Becoming Part 2, rather than just owning up to the fact, okay, my daughter is the Slayer. I may not understand it, but Giles is allotted and is the watcher over my daughter. And I know this now. I know this information now. I knew it. She told me about it then and I didn't listen to her then. And then I kicked her out. There's no responsibility in this situation. I'm not saying that she can't feel upset about it. I'm not saying that at all. I'm saying that I'm very frustrated in how she's shifting the blame. And it feels very much like the conversation at the end of last episode where she's refusing to listen to a daughter, refusing to see things for how it is, and refusing to to understand what is actually going on in the information that she knows of now. I can definitely see that. Yeah, I agree with both of you. And I think, again, it's it's very nuanced. And Joss does a really good job of not making things so very clear, like there's layers to it. I think that it's extremely telling that Giles is the one out there looking for Buffy and Joyce is the one staying at home. I think Joyce is feeling paralyzed by fear as well and by guilt. I think Joyce is not going anywhere. I think it's supposed to symbolize she's kind of doing what Buffy's doing and that she's kind of marinating in her own personal hell at home. You see her like fixing things, doing like the bills or whatever. Like she's she's miserable. She's not happy. And I think Joyce 100% recognizes that what she did with Buffy was wrong earlier on. I mean, like she gets really close to saying it. She says, you know, the last time we talked, we fought, but she doesn't say like, I was wrong. I kicked her out. I, like, that's yep. what we needed to hear. Mm-hmm. And and Giles saying like, hey, don't blame yourself is really, really gracious of him. Obviously, he doesn't know the ins and outs of what happened probably. But Joyce blaming him, it's, it's spot on what you said, Tabby. Joyce blaming him is her shifting the blame from herself. She's looking to blame someone because she feels guilty. And it's – you kind of get this sense that Joyce is jealous of Giles' relationship with Buffy. Joyce has been trying to connect with Buffy the past couple of seasons, but not really doing a super great job of it. And then also turning a super like blind eye to everything that Buffy's been doing, what's been going on, and is refusing to believe Buffy. And so she here she is finding out that Buffy has entrusted this major secret with Giles and not with her. And so she's feeling all this mixture of guilt, but also jealousy. And on top of all of that, here's the thing, like, it's just not right of Joyce to put that on Giles that like, hey, you should have told me that you had this relationship with my daughter because there many, many, many times it's been established that Buffy did not want to tell her mom and that Buffy was the person that um, it was her decision to make to tell her mom. And Giles knew that and Giles respected that. Giles knew that it was not his place to go tell Joyce it was Buffy's and he let her take the lead on that. So for Joyce to look at Giles and say, this is your fault, that puts him in an incredibly unfair position because Giles, that was not a position he was ever supposed to be in. You know, it's frustrating because it makes me feel like Joyce is not fully like believing Buffy. It makes me feel like she's not listening to her. And 
it makes me nervous for mm-hmm. when Buffy comes back. Yep. All right. We should move on before I get more mad. <laughs> um, I, I'm just kidding. It's really – it's not like an infuriating scene. It's more of just like frustrating. Yeah. Because you're just like it, – it feels – I don't know. Whatever. We've rehashed it many times. Um, so we go back to the restaurant. Lily goes up to Buffy and tells her that Ricky's gone. She hasn't seen him and he's usually – been gone for 24 hours no more than that um buffy doesn't want to help you could tell that she's very much like she's still in her state of like having to motivate herself to get out of bed let alone help someone else i think she's hoping that this isn't actually real that there isn't like a real scenario that's going on because we all know buffy if it if she knew it was real she would help her and then lily says but that's what you are and stuff you help people Mm -hmm. and then buffy says not anymore. Mm-hmm. And so you can kind of tell that Buffy is like, you know what? Like, all right, she could be correct. So they go to this blood donation clinic, which is kind of an odd place that they would go to, in my opinion. I'm like, why would you go to – like, you guys go here so much so that you, like, feel like he'd be at this for 24 hours? I don't know. Whatever. I mean, it makes sense for the episode, but, but – it is really funny because it's supposed to be a total symbol for real-life vampires because it's a blood bank where they oh. give blood. <laughs> And well, an angel, an angel too. Like, like he's supposed to, you know, like Buffy losing Angel, Lily losing uh-huh, Ricky. Yeah, there's parallels. Blood donation, yeah, blood donation. And then the people behind the blood <laughs> bank are the actual villains. So it's like real life vampires. It's just really funny. Oh, yeah. Also, what the heck? also, I think it's interesting to know in this scene, Buffy's wearing a cross necklace, and you're noticing like her accepting and accepting to help Lily is kind of her first step towards recognizing her role again. And I just thought that like just putting on like that little necklace, like you start to see like a progression of Buffy kind of Mm -hmm. like easing back into things again. It feels very much like prophecy girl, like Buffy Mm -hmm. with like the cross necklace, like putting it back on being like, you know what? Like as much as I don't want it to be, I am the Slayer and I have to do the right thing. Um, I'm confused because they make it seem like that they donate blood for money, but wouldn't you have to wait like a long period of time? Like I've had friends, like, I don't think this is very safe, but they would go and they would donate their plasma with like sketchy areas and then they would get paid for that. That makes more sense because you can replenish plasma way faster and it's healthier for you than to like donate tons of blood. I know it's supposed to make sense for, like, the metaphor or, like, whatever, but I'm like, man, how much blood are y'all, like, donating? No, that's what I thought about, too, because it's not even, like, oh, they donated a few times or whatever. It's literally, like, they donated so much that the nurse knew them by name. I was like, Lord Almighty, are you guys okay? Like, that's a lot of blood to lose in a short amount of time. Lily goes up. She's like, I have a request. Can you take out the blood in my neck? (laughs) She's like still into like the the vampire cult stuff, and she oh my like gosh. doesn't want to let go of it. <laughs> Did you guys notice that Buffy like winced when she heard someone go "ow" over there, and she's like, Ugh. like as if she's afraid of needles? I thought of you, Leah. Don't bring me into this. Needles are my arch foe. <laughs> also, it's really interesting to note throughout the episode. Lily's lack of self-esteem and self-confidence. Like Buffy's like, we should split up. And Lily's like, okay, can I come with you? Like there's multiple times like Lily's codependency pops up where she's kind of, she doesn't have the ability to be on her own. She needs someone to depend on and to tell her what to do next. I was looking on IMDb for like behind the scenes facts and someone like Whoever is behind that did the math and they said, observing the logistics of the demon sweatshops, if they have a few dozen workers who die after a single day on earth, because, you know, like 
one day on earth is like 100 days in that dimension, they must be abducting that many people every day, which is not as insignificant as the demons claim. Kidnapping about 30 people a day for 365 days would make them be kidnapping about 11,000 people a year for that sweatshop, which is probably a noticeable part of the city's population and would require many demon recruiters working simultaneously to meet that quota. So like that blood bank, there's a lot that doesn't make sense, but whatever. We still like the episode. It's like you're you're about to like be taken into hell. You're like, wait, I have I'm lactose intolerant. Just like, dang it, you're not healthy. Get out of here. (laughs) I know. (laughs) You're like, I'm O negative. Ah, you can go. It's like I've turned into a cow. Can I go home? (laughs) You're excused. (laughs) You're excused. (laughs) Uh, Sorry, guys. The amount of like just random movie and TV like references I have going on in my brain that correlate to random stuff is just. Constant. True. So I apologize. It is true. And then, you know, whatever. She they're like, Oh, he's not on the sheet. They leave. The nurse gives us like sinister looks, like, okay, so clearly something's going yeah, you're on. You're the bad guy. They don't they don't try to hide it at all. Well, I mean, as soon as we saw Blood Bank, we were like, Whoop, they're the bad guys. <laughs> true. I know. Any new scenery in a Buffy episode, you're like, Oh, this is new. It's gonna, it's gonna be the villain. They have a low budget. You know they didn't build the set for nothing. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> It's like Buffy's apartment, but just redecorated. It has a, a poster that says Blood Bank. <laughs> yeah. You're like, this is real sketch, Lily. Go the other <laughs> way, man. Uh, and then afterwards, Buffy kind of separates from Lily to kind of search the streets. Then she finds Ricky dead. Sad face. I didn't even notice the whole like. <laughs> what? She finds Ricky dead. Sad face. <laughs> like a whole dead person. It's like, oh, sad face. Okay, moving on. <laughs> Well, I think it's sad because he drank the drain, drain cleaner. Say that 10 times fast. Drank the drain cleaner. Woo. Um, which is really sad because it shows that he's intentionally trying to kill himself. That's how much despair he is. And I think they're trying to show, like, this may be really dark. Um, they're trying to show, like, Buffy's headed down that path. She's not to that extreme at this point. But, like, if she keeps going the way that she goes, like, you get to that point where you're so in despair. I also kind of view it that like when you're going through stuff that's like really hard or as <laughs> Anne with an E would say, the depths of despair, um, which is very fitting for this episode called Anne. Um, but when you're going through a lot of stuff, you can reject a lot of parts to yourself because you just are so exhausted. Whereas I feel like this episode is trying to tell you being yourself and knowing your strengths and your weaknesses will help you. And so if you deny that – it's not going to help you in life. Like you, like everyone has their own specific strengths. And if you're just going to go on through life rejecting that and like allowing yourself to like remain in a dark place, nothing is going to happen. Like everything's going to get a lot harder for you. Yeah. And this scene is really sad, even though I don't think Lily handled it horribly. I think I would have probably reacted way mm. worse than she did. She held her composure pretty well. But like Buffy having to break the news to her, you could tell there's little empathy when she first starts mm-hmm. out with it. She just kind of has to get it out. And then you see after a while, she's like, it starts to sink back in. She's like, oh, you know what? Like me as Buffy, this hurts me as well. Like this has got to suck. And I think it also like she has to kind of be very callous at first because then she'd have to face mm-hmm. what she's going through as well. Yeah, I just take this whole scene. Obviously, I don't think Buffy's handling it well, but I think that's because Buffy's talking to Lily as she would talk to herself. Buffy's telling herself this is just something you're going to have to deal with. The thing is that Buffy's not dealing with it. 
And that's why she's marinating in this situation. She's not allowing herself to process it and work through it. She's just kind of like stuck. I don't know that she's necessarily in the position to tell Lily to like deal with it, you know? Also, too, Lily's saying, but he didn't do anything wrong. Why would this happen to him? Neither did Angel. It's just the parallels are so interesting. Buffy, that's not the point. These things happen all the time. You can't just close your eyes. And I was like, dang. I wrote that down. You can't just close your eyes and hope that it'll go away. And you're like, oh. Like, because there was a moment, other than the parallel of her telling him to close his eyes, she herself closed her eyes for a moment, allowing herself to feel the hope that it was Angel. Yeah. And so I think – and then she had to snap out of it and be like, you know what? I have to kill him. Well, and she's also dreaming every night about this because she's hoping it will go away. She's hoping it's just a dream. And I think like what she says after this is unfortunate based off of what Buffy has been going through because she's like, is this because of you? You know about all these monsters and stuff. You could have brought it with you. And this kind of reminds me of um, I will always – not that one. I always get that mixed up. I only have eyes for you. Yes. I keep wanting to say, you know, mm-hmm, the other the title other of the other episode. Um because that's kind of the whole theme of the episode where Buffy kind of puts the blame on herself. Mm-hmm. And it's just unfortunate that, like, mm-hmm. that kind of triggers it. But I just I, – I feel for both of them. I think they both didn't handle it perfectly. But I do think that Lily handled it, like, way better than what I would have handled it in the moment. And I also noticed a lot of parallels in this episode with the parallels of um, Angel in Manhattan and becoming part one. She says, I didn't ask for you to come with me, come to me with your problems. I just wanted to be left alone, which is the same thing Angel says to Whistler when he's despairing in Manhattan in the past. And I just think, I just love anytime there's parallels between Angel and Buffy. I just think it's, it's really, it's really interesting. Also to the idea, like as we will learn it later on, like Ricky being trapped in a hell dimension, Angel, you know, being sent to a hell dimension as well. It's just, it's it's really interesting. Yep. And then we go back to the streets. I, my whole like um, notes are like streets, apartment, streets, Sunnydale, yeah, yeah. streets, apartment. <laughs> Blood bank. Blood donation bank. Yeah. Uh, hell. Yeah. <laughs> hell. The usual Buffy episodes. <laughs> hell. <laughs> hell in the kitchen. Yeah. <laughs> So we're back to the streets. Lily this time runs into Ken. He does the whole spiel of manipulation. Hope is a real thing. Yeah. Well, he says that and then he's like, oh, Ricky, are you Lily? So he's like using that information to kind of toy with her. And this makes sense because it's like, okay, we know that she's a follower. She's been in cults before. So Mm. yada, yada, yada. It's really sad. She ends up following him. And then they back to the blood donation bank. And then Buffy's going through, like, all the information. I love how she doesn't even flinch. She doesn't care. When the girl talks to her. She's so done. She does not care. She figures out that a lot of things are written down as candidate for people. Also, fun fact. So, Ricky's file at the top, if you look really closely, it actually says Blood Bank of Sunnydale on it. (laughs) So, whoever was making the props didn't realize that we were in Los Angeles here. Sometimes there are, like, a lot of mistakes in this show, Mike. (laughs) <laughs> didn't see this well and i often I wonder understand. if like the actors themselves are like going through and they see it and they're like uh, uh, uh okay this isn't my job just carry on you know yeah it just doesn't say anything yeah joss is like this is why i want to fire you <laughs> yeah they're like but i just said that like it was in it was a sunny day <laughs> yeah. so they just don't say anything anymore <laughs> yep 
Um, and then she like rips off like the um, the phone, the phone when she's like, I'm going to call the police, doesn't even flinch, rips it off the hinges. Yeah. And she's like, I don't want any trouble. I just want to be left alone and quiet in a room with a chair and a fireplace and a tea cozy. I don't even know what a tea cozy is, but I want one. This is like Dunzo Buffy. <laughs> but I like it because it's like, yes, it's Buffy being done, but you can also tell like Buffy's starting to feel a little bit like herself again. Yes. Like starting to get yes. that spunk. Like even because at the beginning of the episode, like people were kind of being awful to her, but she didn't even have the energy to fight back. Mm-hmm. And now mm-hmm. it's like she's tired of it, but she's starting to find that energy to fight back. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's a really good point, especially because I think it's so important. Buffy's Slayer side and her human side are very well co- like connected at this point now too. I think she's fully grasped them. And so the fact that like once she starts slaying, she starts feeling more like herself again. And I, I love that parallel. And so we find out that the nurse has been giving, we're assuming Ken, the names of all the kids or the quote unquote healthy ones. And then we cut back to the I don't even know what would you call this this like little apartment setup thing where oh they it's lure the family in. home place that um, they were giving out the pamphlets and stuff. There's a whole like it. religious undertone to this of like religious organizations mm. taking advantage of kids and being like, hey, we'll be your family and stuff, and then it turns out to be cult like or you know they promise them hope, but then just it becomes like this indentured servitude type thing. And having her dressed for this cleansing yeah. is just really eerie. But again, like she's done that before, you know? So it's not like it's like a, what are you thinking? It's like clearly this yeah, girl. Sister Sunshine. Oh, that's a horrifying <laughs> name. Um, but I also think it's interesting because it's like this time she isn't doing it just because she feels lost and she needs something. I genuinely think this time like she does have a better head on her shoulder. She just is so desperate for her love back that she'll chase any lead. And then she's like, oh, is the cleansing like a baptism? And he's like, well, not exactly. If he so said not exactly, I'd be like, I need to go to use the restroom, <laughs> run out. So many red flags. And it's been a while. We cut back to the graveyard, and then Cordy is now finally the bait oh that they're gosh. going to use. This seems kind of funny, though. <laughs> it's so funny. Because she's like, I'm doing this for Buffy's sake. This has nothing to do with you, which is really sweet when you think about it. She's mm-hmm. definitely there for both mm-hmm. Xander and Buffy. But the fact that she was like going to be bait, we know that Cordy would not willingly want to be bait. I wouldn't want to be bait. She's um, like, can't Willow be bait? And he's like, he's already seen Willow. And could you complain louder so all the vampires leave? <laughs> <laughs> they Their sparring is so funny. He's like, go away. This is my <laughs> hiding spot. And she's like, Whoa. she's like, well, where do I hide? And he's like, you don't hide your bait. Now go act baby. <laughs> What's the plan? <laughs> vampire attacks you. The vampire kills you. We watch. We rejoice. <laughs> we watch. We rejoice. <laughs> Oh my gosh. And then it cuts over to Willow and they're just like nailing into each other and she's like all bored like, oh my gosh. And the vampire comes up behind her. Just genius directing. So funny. And then straight back to like depressing (laughs) like uh, like room again. And then like Lily's kneeling over the pool thing. Um, And then Buffy's like doing her funny undercover. She's like, hey, what's with all this sin? I'm dirty and bad and the sex and the envy and the loud music <laughs> us kids listen to nowadays. And they're not even flinching. They're no, just staring at her. I love how they just her. like slowly close like, the door. 
<laughs> like they need at least 30 people to meet their quota every single day and they are like, nope, we won't even take Buffy. <laughs> I know. I'm like, aren't you guys going to use anyone? Like I'm confused yeah, why you wouldn't want this chatterbox. Yeah. <laughs> She's like, I suck at undercover. Where's Ken? And I was like, remember Gage, justice for Gage. Oh, <laughs> Gage. Uh, oh, that makes me sad. The only good part of the episode. And then this scene kind of reminds me of like um, Captain America, where like he's like ripping off like his face, like a oh, yeah. gross like face underneath. I think it's really interesting how it's like he takes off his fake face to reveal his true form, which is the demon, and it's yeah. like it's very much a metaphor for like wolf and sheep's clothing yeah. kind of thing. And then they fall into hell, and it's like this whole like slavery, like it kind of reminds me of like Indiana Jones too, like the mm-hmm. the tomb one. The music is um, very Indiana Jones. It's seriously, I think, the most impressive set they've had yet. It's really, really fantastic. Yep. This is just so sad. Like, all these people having to work being, like, whipped and, like, beaten. And it's just a jarring concept. Like, living your whole life having zero hope. Like, watching people next to you die out. Like, And especially knowing that all these people are lonely. And then mm-hmm. they, like, plotted against them knowing that they're lonely and mm-hmm. they could prey on them. It's just even more sad. And then we go back to the graveyard. They're still fighting. Cordy mentions the Inca mummy girl. Yeah, I heard about her. (laughs) Who was snitching on Xander Willow. I like the fact that Cordy's fighting back. It's like, yes, Cordy, tell him off. Like, but it's also just like funny. Like, Cordy, we're we're starting to see more of Cordelia's like spunky, funny character, but not her being super mean. Like, she's finding a really good group of things. Yes, I agree. I agree. Also, the pacing of this episode somehow works. Like when we're talking about it, we're like, what is happening? But like when you're watching it to switch back from like hell to them arguing over a vampire, it actually really works. And I don't know how Joss does it, but somehow like the tone of the episode doesn't feel like a roller coaster. It just it makes sense for what No, the I agree. Going. The the pacing feels very natural. Yep. Although, okay. Props to Oz. Willow screams, and you see Oz booking it over there, and he beats both Cordelia and Willow, or Cordelia and Xander, even though they were closer. I was like, go Oz, man. Boyfriend of the year. And he's a tiny human, too. Yeah. He booked it over there. And then they fight. They they kiss. Music swells. Typical Cordelia and Xander fashion. <laughs> um, and then, you know, naturally goes straight back to hell. Um <laughs> And then <laughs> it's really funny to break down this episode because, like, you guys like, are saying, like, you're just like jumping back and you're like, all right, this, I was about to say the sperm bank. Tell me about the sperm bank. Nope, wrong show. <laughs> we are still in high school here. Keep it PG, Tabs. And they have this whole dialogue where he's like telling her that, like, he knew that they'd come and uh, Lily asks where they are. And then the, he's like, hell. And then Buffy says, this isn't hell. That like really spoke volumes. This is better to her than what she's been putting herself through mm-hmm. the past couple of months. And what Ken says is really interesting. He says, isn't it what is hell but the total absence of hope? The substance, the tactile proof of despair. You're right, Lily. This is where you've been heading all your life. Just like Ricky. He forgot you. Took him a long time. He remembered your name years before he forgot his own. But in the end, like what a years sucky- after. Yeah, what a sucky thing to say to someone, though. I think for Buffy, like, she would prefer 
this literal hell to the one that she's been living in only because she knows what to do in this situation with a lot of mental and emotional blockage. Like sometimes it's like you have to literally convince yourself to, to eat, to like take a shower or to do just the most mundane things. But for her, sometimes slaying is just so like, it's a reaction for her and she can figure that out. But it's like a lot of like emotional stuff you, I mean, I've never killed my boyfriend before, so I don't well, really know good. what she's going through. But <laughs> I'm like, so you know. But like, you just every new obstacle that comes when it comes to emotional or like mental um, health, sometimes you just don't know what to do. Like, you, it's so incredibly hard to get out of that. And so I think slaying for her is easier. Yeah, but it also yeah. is like. We we cover this in the first, second season where it's like slang is who she is. It's not just her job. It's a part of her. And so I think that denying that part of her ultimately hurts her more than it helps her because it's like it's who she is. Mm-hmm. It helps give her purpose and a drive and a passion. And I think that mm-hmm. when she tries to ignore that, she ultimately finds herself kind of lost. Yeah. I think this, this moment in this episode is so – good because it's touching on so many things. Like I see like, so you'll, you work us until we're too old, then you spit us back out. And I kind of was thinking about the metaphor of the slayer here too, you know, how this whole episode is a commentary on how young Buffy is and how she's too young to carry such a burden. Like they take great pains to mention Buffy as a child. Eventually Buffy will die most likely from slaying. And when she does, another slayer will take over and on and on and on it goes. And so it's like, Buffy's kind of like, what's the point of going on? Like, I'm just going to be replaced by someone else, you know? And I think also too, it's, we need each other. Like we're watching the Scooby struggle without Buffy. We're watching Buffy struggle without her friends too. Like there's a sense of like, you're lonely and it's easier to fall into despair when you don't have people around you as well. Also, Ken's saying, see, Lily, you'll die of old age before anyone wonders where you went. Not that anyone will, but that's why we chose you. That's literally Lily's deepest insecurity because she doesn't Mm. have anyone. And I just feel so bad for her in this moment. I know. It's so sad. But, like, that's just master – not even manipulation at this point. Like, at first it was before they were literally in hell. And then now that they're here, it's like – got to bring her down as low as you can mm-hmm. because that's the only way she's like not going to make it out of the situation, right? Mm-hmm. Is to deny everything about herself, deny her personality, mm-hmm. deny her strengths, deny her weaknesses, mm-hmm. deny everything that makes her unique and amazing mm-hmm. and she'll succumb to whatever you want. I feel like that's the whole point of this whole episode. Yep. And the hell dimension is they literally strip people of their humanity and their individuality yep. and their self-worth. Yep, everyone wearing the same thing, forgetting your name, all those things. And Buffy, you didn't choose me. And then he goes on, he's like, yeah, but I know you, Anne. And I love that he calls her Anne, you know? And it's once again this whole like, he knows Anne, but he doesn't know Buffy. He hasn't met Buffy. Or you could just say, oh, I know you've had a hard life and like just assume that you understand what they're going through, but you meet people and you have no idea what it is that they're battling. Mm-hmm. Literally no idea. Even if someone says, hey, I'm battling some like mental health issues, even as somebody who has struggled with mental health, it's like mm-hmm. I still have no idea the way it takes on them. Even mm-hmm. if it's a similar situation, it can control me or I can handle it way differently than they handle it and vice versa. And it's like just because I go through something similar to someone else doesn't mean that it won't affect them differently. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we have this iconic Mm -hmm. scene 
Where oh, I get goosebumps. This guy is way scarier than a lot of things I see on Buffy. His like teeth, he has like zero gums, like all teeth, no lips. He looks really like horrifying. an orc. You just can't see his eyes. Oh, yeah. Yeah, this does kind of give me like Lord of the Rings vibes. Yeah, it really does. And he goes over. I was thinking the whole time, I was like, I would not want to be the first person in any of these situations. <laughs> You're like, I don't know what to say. You're the guinea pig. You have no idea. Their purpose is just to kill the first person to show everyone else like what they shouldn't be doing. You do not want to be the first person. Mm -hmm. A rule for any type of show, movie, anything. If you're stuck in a bad situation, never be the first person. Never be the last person. Always be averagely in the middle. You never want to stick out. <laughs> Leah's like, ah, oh, too bad I didn't have blonde hair so they wouldn't recognize me. <laughs> yeah, dang. Leah's disguise just dye her hair blonde and blend right in with all the other blondes. <laughs> no, exactly. They'll never pick me out of a crowd. <laughs> so he goes around. He's like, who are you? And the first guy's like, oh, I'm, you know, whatever. Aaron. <laughs> kills him. A.A. <laughs> <A>. Ron. Bye-bye. <laughs> uh, rest in peace, Aaron. My bad. Um, I'm like, and then Aaron's dead, sad face. Um, and then he moves on. And then he goes over Lily. And then she, you know, lucky girl figures out you're supposed to say no one. <laughs> it's so interesting that once he hits the first prisoner, Buffy's face hardens in resolve. That is the moment she decides she's going to fight back. And I think that's so Buffy to be like, he's hurting other people. I'm going to stand up for them. It's just so yep. impactful. No, I agree. It's like, yeah, of course, like. I'm going through a lot and it's like, I don't really want to fight back for me right now. But she's like, I'm not going to sit by and let these people die because I'm having an off day. Mm -hmm. And then he heads over to Buffy. Who are you? And she's looking at the ground. She stares up and says, I'm Buffy, the vampire slayer. And you are? And you see him being like shocked. With a little smile on her face too. Mm -hmm. ah, this is the first time, not just in this episode that she refers to herself as Buffy. This is the first time in this show that she says, I'm Buffy the Vampire Slayer. She's never done that before. And I think that is showing us the question of who is Buffy that Joyce asked earlier on. She is Buffy the Vampire Slayer. She's both girl and, and slayer. And she's back. And she's back. Yeah, and this is the first time we've seen her – Acknowledge and recognize both sides of herself, mm -hmm. which I think is so powerful. What a comeback. It's the first episode of season two, and she's already, like, gone through it and been like, nope, I'm back, I'm Buffy, mm -hmm. and I'm about to kick your butt. Yeah, I, and it's so subversive. She uses her own identity to upend Ken's plans. They strip people of their identity. She uses her identity to fight back. It's huge. I just think about like no weapons, no friends, no hope. Take all that away. What's left? Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Ah, so good. Yep. Love, love, love it. Then we have this. This is one of my favorite fighting scenes in so season three. So good. I just love how they use the atmosphere. Like she runs around and she kicks so much. I'm like, girl, why aren't you like snapping their necks or something? She's just like roundhouse kicking all of them. They're going flying, which is really entertaining to watch. But I'm like, girl, you got to try and kill some of these people. <laughs> yeah. Well, it, she grabs the guy's arm. She breaks it, grabs his club, knocks out the one guard, then sticks the sharp end of the club into another guy. She uses this one club and like kills three people. Anyone who's not having fun here, follow me. They're all like, yes, master, we follow you now. <laughs> Our Lord and Savior, Buffy the Vampire Slayer. I also like how they're kind of showing you that season three is really upping its game. But yeah. it's already starting off with a huge fight scene with something that 
we relate. Like, we saw fight scenes for sure in the season two and one, but, like, fight scenes like this were really safe for the big episodes. And so mm-hmm. the fact that they're, like, already starting in hot, it's like, okay, season three is definitely picking up. Yeah, this is by far the best fight scene we've seen so far in the show. I think the fact that Lily says, again, you're leaving me right here is interesting, again, because Lily sees herself as an individual and someone who follows and needs direction. And like, do you guys remember what Buffy says to Lily right after that? She says, you can handle this because I say so. So Buffy is recognizing that Lily needs someone to tell her what to do. And so in that moment, Buffy's like, kind of like sharing her strength too. She's like, hey, I say so. I'm giving you the strength. I'm giving you the courage to go do that. And I think that's really cool. And we see later on that Anne takes that and kind of makes it her own. I like that Lily, in the midst of all the chaos, goes up to Buffy and is like, I'm sorry I said this was your fault before. And Buffy's like, you know what? Totally understand. It's okay. Like, just keep moving on. Dude, right? I think it's so sweet that Buffy's just like, I get it. It's all right. We're good. And it's just like, moving on. Yeah, but like, Lily apologizing? I don't know that Mm -hmm. I've ever heard the Scoobies apologize to Buffy when they've been crappy. I don't know. I like, I was like, can Lily join the Scooby gang? Because I feel like this girl has understood Buffy, empathized with her, and now like apologized for her crappy behavior in the past. Mm. And I feel like that's, it it just is beautiful. It was so well done and it, it didn't need to happen, but it was so good. I agree. I think that it's like part of the fault of the Scoobies is that because they're around Buffy so much, they've become accustomed to her constant kindness and constant like bravery and so they don't think about the fact like oh like she's still human i need to thank her i need to you know apologize and stuff whereas Anne sees buffy in a very human way and so she Mm. she she realizes like oh this is a human being who's going through something and i hurt them Mm. that's a really good point leah well they also connect yeah the where the scoobies see more of buffy's strength and sees her strength, but recognizes the human behind it. And might I add, Lily is still in the midst of her going through the same thing, almost the same thing as what Buffy went through, and she was still kind about it. And hmm, let's see. Willow's <laughs> not doing so great right now. Xander's not doing so great right now. Joyce is not doing so great right now. The only people that I'm like, you know what, you get a pass is like Oz and Giles. Mm-hmm. Yep. And and Cordelia. Cordelia, I'm doing this yeah, for Cordelia, Buffy. My bad. Like what the heck? Yeah. <laughs> yep. She's like literally going through a very sim- like a very similar thing that Buffy's going through and apologized and was kind and didn't even react that badly. Like, yeah, she has merit to apologize, but like she really didn't react that horribly. Like she kept her composure, like she was very kind. Like, I don't know. I I, I stand. I hate that. Why did I say that? I respect and I love the character of Lily. <laughs> no, Lily is amazing. I stand. <laughs> uh, he's, Ken's like, humans don't fight back. That's how this works. And it's interesting because Ken doesn't see them as individuals. He says humans as a collective. He doesn't see them as individual people with individual identities, which I think is his mistake. This is why, you know. That was his downfall. Okay, so there's this iconic moment with Buffy armed with a hammer and a sickle, and she takes out all the guards on the floor. So the hammer and sickle is a symbol. It's meant to represent a proletarian solidarity, which is um, based on Wikipedia. It's the social class for laborers. It's typically a communist symbol as communism sees proletarian workers as oppressed under capitalism. 
Um, so the hammered sickle became a symbol of this. It's a union between the peasantry, which is the pre-industrial term, and the working class. It was first adopted during the Russian Revolution. The hammer represents workers and the sickle represents farmers. And so the idea is all of these slaves and stuff are considered you know, oppressed workers without any identity. And Buffy is the revolutionary who's freeing all of them. Uh, so Joss about this, he says, the hammer and sickle were not intentional, but I too noticed the imagery when I saw them and was most pleased. So it was not intentional, but it feels like it was very intentional based upon the epic shot of her holding both the weapons. But even more, I think this is really cool. So it's from fightright.net. The article's literally called Behold the Hunga Munga. If you're a fan of Buffy the Vampire Slayer, you may remember this strange looking hunk of metal that she's holding. It's kind of like the sickle looking thing with the, it uh, has a couple blades that stick out in interesting angles, but it's shaped like a boomerang. It looks something like a Klingon would carry and they might if they are African. Yes, the hunga munga is a thing. It was employed as a tool of war in African tribes south of Lake Chad. It is also known as a denisco by the Margi, goleo by the Musku, and ninja, I think I'm saying that right, by the Bagimi. The spikes are used as a melee weapon hand-to-hand, but it is more intended for throwing. That beautiful crescent blade is intended to be thrown in a rotary motion, end over end, much like a boomerang, a terrifying, decapitating boomerang. I would imagine if you saw this coming at you, the next thing you would see is Jesus. <laughs> and it's got many names, but it's mostly called a hungamunga. And I just love that. Isn't that cool? That's intense. Yeah. So now every time you see that weapon, be like, that's a hunga munga. Carry on. So Lily gets captured by Ken and then he holds up her in front of everyone, kind of showing this is what happens when humans don't do what we ask them to do. Gives this whole monologue. You see Lily being like, wait a minute. <laughs> I can't just push him over this ledge. <laughs> she pushes him over. Everyone just like pauses. And then just Buffy gets right back to everything. It's just like the timing is so funny to me. Everyone's like, what do we do now? Like all the prisoners, like all of like the uh, We the have demons. no identity. Who are we? I know. Well, yeah, apparently because he's ripped it all away from them. I like this because this is the first free will choice we have seen and make. Yeah. She chooses yeah. this without anyone's assistance, mm-hmm. anyone's help, nothing. Mm-hmm. She chooses to stand up to fight back to choose to live Mm -hmm. like good Mm -hmm. for Anne. growth love to see it so everyone runs out buffy holds up this like falling it's like huge iron gate yeah oh my gosh that poor girl she's like i'm gonna feel this tomorrow my girl i can i can feel it for you (laughs) that thing is heavy um everyone runs through Ken knocks her over and right before they pan over where she's like falling on the other side i legit looks like the gate was going to fall on her. Yeah. I think the direction wasn't really that clean because I was like, that would have literally landed on her legs. But it doesn't. It falls on Ken's legs. Also, this is, I think this is one of like the first like scenes that we've seen in Buffy that is a little bit more like graphic, gruesome graphic. It's not even that graphic, but like we've not seen something like this before, which again kind of sets up what season three is supposed to be. It's supposed to be a little bit more edgy 
Um, and then she's like, hey, Ken, want to see my impression of Gandhi? And he's like, Gandhi? And then she smashes his head. Oh, you know, if he was really pissed off. It It is a little bit darker, too, because we've never really seen Buffy kill someone execution style. This was very much like he was alive and talking to her, and she just, boom, kills him, and that's it. And so it feels – a little bit um, darker than it normally was. Not saying it wasn't justified, not saying he didn't deserve it. And he is demon. He's not human. And that's her job. But it just was – it's very interesting how, like, um, I don't know, avert it was, I guess. We've usually only seen snapping of, like, demon-demon necks or, like, dusting. We haven't really seen much other than that. Yeah, we're used to mm-hmm. dusting, and this was not a dusting at all. No, we're not used to, you know, smashing someone's head in. Yeah. Um. And this is such a tender scene. I think it's just really sweet. So good. Like Buffy, Buffy gives her her old apartment, tells her that it's already paid up for three weeks. She gives her her job. And then she's like, I'm not great at taking care of myself. And Buffy says, it gets easier. It takes practice. Mm. (laughs) But I just love how like Buffy is giving her the start to take care of herself. Mm-hmm. Like, she's giving her everything she needs to get her feet up and just, like, start at her own independence. And honestly, like, that's one of the best gifts you can give to someone. And not just that. She says, I'll call in a few weeks to check up on you. Oh, my gosh. That's what you do. You call in. You don't just, like, give them stuff and say, okay, you're good. No, like, you call up on them. You check on them. You you stay consistent in their lives. And I think that is just beautiful because – and. I think that's Joss showing us at the end of the episode how we're supposed to take care of each other. Like all these homeless yeah. people that are out on the on the streets, this is how you help them. You get in their lives. You um, call on them. You check up on them. And we don't always have the financial resources to give them a home and stuff, but we do what we can, you know? Yep. And I think sometimes like us people, we tend to treat other people's trauma and pain on like a um, a timed test on your end and see like, all right, like I'm going to put through all these like bullet points that I think I need to do. And then you just kind of expect them to be over it and to like be done once you are done helping them. Mm -hmm. And so I think for people, it takes so much longer, so much more, so much longer than you are comfortable with. And I think that like, you're totally right, Sarah. Like it's more than just being like, Hey, here's this opportunity. It's like, you know what? Just giving someone an opportunity is not enough. Just like she said beforehand, it takes practice. And she's by herself. She may have the strength to like maybe go to work or whatever, but that still means she has so much to unravel. She still has so much mental and emotional stuff she needs to to like work through. She needs people around her who love her to support her through it. Like all those things are necessary. It's not just like a, oh, here are the same things to help you and then never talk to them again. It's like, that's not going to help them. As a start... But that's not all. Mm-hmm. Yep. And then she asks, can I be Anne? And which is so sweet because it's like, I think it's her paying a tribute to how strong she saw Buffy was. Because um, she's like, I don't want to be Buffy. I want to be my my own self. But I want to be as strong as I saw Buffy was. And so I think it's sweet because it's like, yes, it's not like her. She's not like regaining her own um, name. I think that she's just trying to find herself again and she's taking inspiration and admiring how much Buffy put into everything and wanting to be like her. 
Yeah, she's taking the first steps of being independent and making something of herself. And the fact that she took the initiative and pushed Ken off shows that she's not trying to be exactly like Buffy, but that she's like being her own person too. But I also think that ultimately it's just her way of telling Buffy that like she admires her, but also thanking her because she wants to take on her mantle when Buffy's gone. Oh, and Buffy's smile at the end of that scene too. She just is like, mm. you know, I think that touched Buffy too. Like it, it reminded her why she does this. Yep. And then we end the episode with Joyce working on the sink. She's trying to keep herself busy, I'm guessing. Mm-hmm. And then she hears a knock on the door. And this one is very hesitant. I feel like Christine Sutherland does such a good job in the scene because you can see her in her like monologue by being like, don't allow yourself to be hopeful. Like, we know it's not Buffy. I know when I open the door, I'm going to be disappointed. Like, there's so much that she is walking herself through. At least for me, I could see that. Um, And that's the beauty with acting with, like, no dialogue is that you can kind of view it differently for each person. So what do you guys think? Do you think that she was hopeful in the situation or do you think she was not allowing herself to – what do you think? I – I kind of went back a couple times because I was like, okay, how do I interpret this scene? And I think – I read it initially like how you did, that she's hopeful and she's kind of holding herself back. But I think there was a part of her at the very end there that was like, I think Buffy's there. I think she sensed Buffy there. But I think she also was kind of like trying not to be too hopeful about it just in case that she didn't like – she didn't want her hopes to be dashed down again. But I don't know. It's a really interesting moment. I wasn't sure exactly how to read it. I kind of agree with Sarah. I think it's supposed to kind of be something where you're not completely sure about. Like, I think it's kind of be su- su- – oh, my gosh. I think it's supposed to be something where you're kind of like, she could be sure, she could not be. But either way, I just think the scene is so touching. It's very moving. Yeah. And I like the fact that us, the viewers, kind of – are in the place of Joyce where we open up the door mm-hmm. and we see the Buffy's home. Mm-hmm. And so it kind of feels like in the opening scene when she was bad, she goes, miss me, which is kind of like a tribute to the fans where it's like, you mm-hmm. missed me. Like I was gone for so long. Buffy's back. And in this one, it's like Buffy is back home. Like we we're all just kind of like, oh, okay, Buffy's home. We feel like she's Buffy again. And it kind of gives me similar um, situation than in the opening of season two. And I think a, a lot of the openings of each season feel very much like something new. You have to kind of like retrain your brain to be like, you know what? Like my life is moving on. And I just, I've loved both the season two and season three openers. Yeah. I think it's incredibly moving and it's very significant that Joyce is the one that initiates the hug. You know how Buffy stands there and is kind of like uncertain and Joyce like opens the door, sees her, and then the look on her face is just relief and happiness that Buffy's back, but I think also this overwhelming sadness because she knows that she's hurt her. I think I think in that moment Joyce was able to kind of forgive herself a little bit, hopefully. Um, but I love that she just like reaches for Buffy and initiates a hug. And I love that we see Buffy's face, like it closes on Buffy's face, and the look on Buffy's face is everything it is so precious she just she missed her mama and it's so sweet and i I agree with you sarah the fact that joyce is the one who initiates it makes it even more sweet Mm -hmm. we needed i think we as the audience needed that as well and i think again i don't think joyce is a bad mother i think that the writers kind of use her as a plot device for whatever they need for the episode but i think deep down joyce is a really good mother and i also think too 
It's interesting to note that no matter how hard Giles and Joyce looked for Buffy, they couldn't find her because Buffy had to find her way back home. It was up to Buffy to do it. And I think that's incredibly important. Well done, you guys. Our first episode of season three is done for the books. Oh, Man, we have so much good stuff to talk about. Many more to come. Yeah, I feel like this is one of those seasons that mm-hmm. I'm going to be like so excited for every single episode. I just, I can't wait. Yep. Oh, this is so good. Hopefully you guys enjoyed this. Hopefully you loved it. We're so excited you're here for season three. Please let us know your thoughts. I feel like Anne is one of those episodes that you either love the vibe or you're just like not my favorite, but I think everybody agrees that it's just a fantastic episode. Um, You guys can find us on Instagram at Becoming Buffy Podcast. Find us on Tumblr. You can email us at becomingbuffypodcast at gmail.com. Let us know your thoughts and we will see you next time.